Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar series presented to you by Cooper Tires and our great friends at the Justice Brothers. We're coming off of a truly fascinating weekend in Circuit of the Americas, the inaugural IndyCar Classic at Circuit of the Americas, won by Colton Herta, who's going to be calling in here shortly. Colton was on last week, and I'd love to say that a week in IndyCar bump was responsible for his victory, but no. We know that his talent and also a well-timed caution and some great engineering and some great driving, a whole bunch of things combined to create IndyCar's youngest ever winner. Just a phenomenal result there. So look forward to catching up with Colton, who has been flat out with media obligations here. It is almost noon on a Wednesday. We're hoping... Sometime in the next hour to 90 minutes, he's going to have a small window to call in, but that's a price you pay for becoming an IndyCar winner at uh, as a teenager, I guess. So great for him. And then following Colton, we have the awesome Kate Gundlach, who's the assistant engineer at Chip Ganassi Racing on Scott Dixon's championship winning number nine Honda. And then we close with young Renus VK, Dutch badass of the highest order, your reigning pro Mazda, now called Indy Pro 2000 champion on the road to Indy, received that Mazda scholarship for a full season in Indy Lights, chose to do that with the Honkos Racing Team, already a winner of one of the four races this year, so caught up with Renus here just a little while ago, talking about coming out of Coda, just general thoughts and plans, and really do believe this is a kid we're going to see in IndyCar in the next year or two, and once he gets there, based on what I've seen from him so far in a, uh, a relatively short career, but based on what I've seen, yeah, I think he's going to fit in perfectly with the Pato Awards, Colton Herta's, Felix Rosenquist's, and so on, in terms of young talent that should be winning races, maybe even championships, going to continue to carry that torch in IndyCar as we have this amazing youth revolution going on. So that's what we have for you today. Start off here with a a quick mention, another fun one from our friends at torontomotorsports.com. They actually have a new Colton Herta t-shirt they're working on, which should be available. And I mean, I guess that's another fun thing too. Toronto Motorsports does a lot of this stuff, very quick reacting between Derek Koska, the team owner there, team owner. Well, yeah, they feel like a part of the paddock, so I guess we'll call them a team. But anyways, business owner, Derek Koska, and also Roger Warwick, artist supreme. So if you're a Colton Herta fan, Herdamania 2.0, in theory, you might have a t-shirt that you can buy by visiting torontomotorsports.com. They also have some fun stuff that Derek and I spoke about coming up here during the month of May. A lot of special items, t-shirts, stickers, you name it, and uh, definitely one big sales event they're going to be doing on-site at Indianapolis that's coming up that they will be announcing. So all kinds of really fun things. Going to save most of my thoughts on Coda for a written piece that should be coming to racer.com here very shortly. Uh, Definitely a ton of great questions from y'all that you have sent in for me, as we did last week. And I think I'm just going to make this the standard format. When you do send in a bunch of questions for me, which I greatly appreciate, I'm just going to move those to the end of the show. If it's a fairly modest number of questions, something I can knock out in a half hour or less, I'll probably just keep that as part of the little cold open here. But knowing that we have a ton of questions, 
going to just push those to the back so that we place the number one priority starting off with Colton, then Kate, then Renus. Also ask for you all to send in your thoughts about turn 19 at Circuit of the America. Uh, Circuit of the Americas and here we are three days later and there's still it's not raging as much as it was but there's still ongoing debate about turn 19 worst idea ever looked horrible what's wrong with IndyCar 2 that was amazing I'm so glad they did it Formula 1 should follow so I asked for you all to send in some of your thoughts so I'm going to get to your questions here after our guests and then also get into some of the just general thoughts and opinions I asked you to share about Turn 19 because that's the format of the show. You ask the questions, you tell us what's on your mind, and that's what we try and present. So with all that said, thanks once more to the Justice Brothers who have really been a big and powerful and meaningful supporter that has joined on this year in 2019. Thanks to Cooper Tires which joined us at the beginning of 2018, and you want to talk about awesome people, truly. Uh, They really are uh, a a big, big engine that helps us to do what we do here. Just crossed 2.5 million downloads over the Coda weekend as well since we launched the show. We've got our third anniversary coming up here in May, so already talking about some fun, special things we can do. But Certainly, uh, we try not to overwhelm you here with a whole bunch of reads on sponsors and advertisers and so on, but I will always take time to say thank you to those who do make this possible, along with you all who are listening, that power this show. It's pretty awesome to know that we have a growing list of partners that say, hey, you know what, Pruitt? Well, you're an idiot, but we take pity on you. Uh, Let's keep doing this podcast thing. Let's do bigger and better things. So, More fun to come. Thanks for helping us to get to 2.5 million downloads. And there's more coming. And one last note before we get on to Colton. Yes, indeed, MarshallPruittPodcast.com is a thing. It's alive. It's functioning. We're getting down to weeding out the final little bugs and things that aren't quite working. So that is there. Hopefully you have checked it out and uh, possibly even used the subscribe page to figure out the best method that works for you to get what we do here with the little MP podcast. All right, let's get going with Herdomania 2.0. A lot of fun questions for him. Uh, we're going to find out about the podium celebration and the uh, misappropriation of Joseph Newgarden's bottle of alcohol when Colton, who's too young to drink, uh, got that cider or was supposed to get cider. Uh, we did have some of you write in and say, well, in Texas, where we were, as long as you're 18 and you're within sight of your parents, and they okay it, you can drink alcohol. Uh, even had a friend from the IndyCar series tweet that out. Um, you know, we try and be honest with you here. Not that it really matters, but uh, we were surprised to learn about this. Uh, happened to be below the podium with our man Robin Miller, with Sean Jones. Uh, we were just wrapping up our interview with Brian Herta, Colton's dad, and uh, it took them coming down with the bottles and saying, oh, hey, by the way, yeah, we didn't realize. So, yeah, this wasn't exactly a sanctioned thing, but, you know, come on, man. If you can drive an IndyCar and win an IndyCar race, uh, whether your parents were in exact line of sight and give you the thumbs up to take a big swig or not, there are bigger problems in the world to solve. And anybody who's maybe wound up about that, I, A, I don't think you're a listener. And B, uh, if you are, you know, come on, man. We're just trying to enjoy ourselves here. And uh, Colton, thankfully, we haven't had to send him to rehab yet. So we're doing okay. I don't think he's turned into a rambling wreck. 
as a result of a little bit of champagne on the podium at Coda. All right, let's get going with our man, this teenage phenom from Harding Steinbrenner Racing, Colton Herta, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Colton Herta, well, you made the mistake of winning an IndyCar race, so now we are here Wednesday at 1.13 p.m. California, and I don't think you have put the phone down since you won or you've been on camera. What's your life been like, man? Tell me what it's like becoming a first-time IndyCar winner and all of the post-race expectations and duties. You're like a rock star. <laughs> but aren't cool. you already? Don't you have a band and an album? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But what's it like, man? Busy. Busy. Haven't been home yet, but uh, I guess this is, uh, this is a good thing. Well, we're going to get into uh, some great questions folks have sent in. This is the first time, by the way, on the Week in IndyCar I've ever had the same uh, lead guest back two weeks in a row. But I mean, Well, that... you know if I win at Barber, what's going to happen? You're going to be my permanent guest, I guess. Yeah, so I'm going to have to host the show. Are you prepared for that kind of just horrible downturn in your life? I don't think so, but... <laughs> All right, so last week we opened, uh, or somewhere in the early part of our show... You mentioned that uh, your band has a new album, and it, it's out, I believe. Before we get into no, the, not yet. Okay. Not yet. Well, before we get into all the race stuff, g- give us the name again of your band. Do you ha- is there is there a name for the album, and where can folks find it when it's ready? We're we're still working on uh, on the album. Well, it's not a full album; it's an EP, so it'll have like five or six songs on it. We're gonna try and do an album by the end of the year. But obviously, my busy schedule um, kind of hurts that a little bit. Um, but it'll be—I'll probably show. I'll, I'll release it on my Twitter. Um, it'll be—you know—I think um, I'm not even sure when we're when we're doing it. They're going through all their all this stuff right now. We've we've recorded pretty much everything. Now we're just editing it down. So uh, hopefully, I don't want to say a, a week or two weeks because it t- could take another month. I have no clue. Coming soon to Colton Herta's Twitter feed or social media outlets. Um, buy the album. What's the name of the band? The Zips. The Zips. Okay. And was it lost on you that as a drummer, the uh, the person who almost won the race on Sunday until yeah. uh, the, the yellow flag and then he blew up first gear, Will Power, probably IndyCar's most renowned drummer. So... Was there any drummer on drummer hatred? Uh, was there any kind of symbol crash? What happened? I've got I've got no clue. I've never um, I've never heard him play. So he plays sometimes when we're on the if phone. I want to take him on in a drum off or not? See, that's it. Power drum off. You and Herta, you're going down, sucker. All right, uh, we got some great questions here. Great, great questions. And before I dive right into those, just wanted to touch on a couple of cool little factoids that came out right after the race. Um, Sean Jones, who's a big part of your world, longtime family friend, uh, step, yes. stepdad to uh, George Steinbrenner the 19th, um, he had mentioned that uh, your former teammate, Pato Award, was quick to, I think, text the team, but uh, just reach out and say, hey, congratulations to you, heartfelt congratulations. I mean, for anybody who thinks there might have been any bad blood between the two of you for any reason, between him stepping away from Harding Racing, I mean, this is just kind of confirmation that, you know what, 
the two of you are going to have a pretty long and good career, and you know you guys are both upstanding members of the community. I'm sure that meant something to you as well. Yeah, with how he's going, I think he's going to be just all right. <laughs> he might he might have a career in this thing, uh, but no, I I mean I, me and Pato still text. We're still good friends. Uh, obviously, I I didn't really have anything to do with it. So, uh, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a bit tough, you know. Um, I think Pato ended up uh, wanting to leave, but they they were still in contact and still tried to work something out. But it just didn't work out between them and. Um, you know, they were both kind of thankful for the effort that, that, that there kind of was still negotiations ongoing and, uh, and stuff. So it wasn't a full just dropout. Um, but yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't come to a conclusion. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I got a text from Pato as well. I didn't know he texted the team, but that's uh, very sincere of him. It was cool too. I was walking pit lane with him, I think on Friday and uh, he happened, he and Mike Harding happened to see one another at the same time. And, you know, again, just in terms of, of water under bridge, you know, Pato waved, said, you know, went over and said hello and vice versa. So, yeah, just cool. I, there's nothing I love more than hearing something that could have been uncomfortable. Uh, you guys are all cool and uh, everything's just moving in the right direction. Let's move to Robbie Bergeron, who's got the first question here. He says, uh, have you bet Allenser Jr. anything? that you'll beat his position uh, in the championship when he was a rookie compared to your rookie year. I love that. Right out of the gate. I, I don't know. Do you know where he finished his rookie year? I'll have to take a look. I assume it was pretty good, but I also assume you can beat him. Uh, you know, I'll just suggest something. If you ma- if you do make a bet, make it that he has to quit smoking because yeah. I want to keep him around for a while, and that's the one habit he's had since he was a rookie, if not longer. Yeah, yet to I, give up. well, I, I do not, um, I do not bet on my racing. So unfortunately, probably that probably won't happen. All right. Uh, I think I don't think it's it's good luck. Um, and uh, but yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to beat his record. I'd like to beat <laughs> a lot of his records. I would look for a pretty good Indy five driver. Save a save a, a ring finger or two for some uh, Indy five hundred yeah. hardware. That's not a bad plan. All right, yeah. so the next couple questions here are great. It's all about post-race uh, celebrations and champagne. Ryan Ward asks, so how much champagne went down before you realized it was a real deal and wasn't the cider, the non-alcoholic cider you're supposed to have? And then our pal Tom Schreier, and welcome back to the show, Tom, and, and so happy you're back after losing your wife. Uh, Tom says, hey, here's a question for Colton. Did Joseph Newgarden give you your first ever drink of alcohol because you ended up getting Joseph's bottle? And will you testify against him for contributing to the delinquency of a minor? So, again, nothing major here, but it was kind of a fun mix-up, I guess. Uh, so tell us about few, that. Like, yeah, I got a few things out on this. So, uh, well, actually, it wasn't Joseph that mixed it up. It was the podium guy who was supposed to give it out. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, and then I got, I got tied in an article from Fox News is the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's the lamest article I've also have ever seen. It was um, they they said, uh, oh, you know, we got in contact with the police, but but they they haven't commented on if anybody's gotten cited about this uh, uh, this incident. I was like, come on, <laughs> that is the lamest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's actually legal to 
be underage and drink in Texas if your parent is there and allows you to, which I believe my dad was at the bottom of the podium. Yeah, so we were talking. I, I don't count. think he knew about it. He mentioned it was cider. But again, who cares? I mean, I'm not trying to say these things don't matter, but in the context of what's going on, yeah, an 18-year-old exactly. just won his first IndyCar race. I don't know if you've had alcohol before. I'm not asking you to say whether you have or haven't, but um, as I mentioned on my own in the cold open, you know, I'm not speaking to you from rehab. Uh, I don't believe you, you tasted champagne on Sunday and have gone on a 72-hour binge, and now your your old man's, you know, uh, most folks could taste alcohol and then potentially not become the worst member of society. I'm I'm suggesting you might be one of those people. Well, it's possible. Rumors. There's rumors of such things taking place. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let's get to uh, John Sable, who says, uh, Colton, congratulations on an amazing win in race. He says, do you guys think IndyCar has found a long-term partner in Coda? He says, from home, the racing appeared to be awesome, and the crowd looked all right for year one. What was the vibe from the paddock? So, obviously, you're, you're bathed in the glory of winning and all the great stuff, but do you think IndyCar might have something they can build upon? And what was the general feel you picked up during the weekend there? Um, I hope so. It was, um, it was I, I guess, not surprising for the town that we were in, but surprising for IndyCar how young the demographic that was that was there. Yeah, that's what I was very interested in and very surprised in, um, which is obviously very good for IndyCar. Um, it seems like it put on a great race. Um, you know, obviously, it, I, I rewatched the race and, and it looked like a lot of it was was down to pit sequence and how big the windows were that created a lot of action. Um, but even just the long back straight, you know, we saw a lot of moves into into the end of the straight, and then that that triple apex corner as well, where where Pato and Graham got into some battling. Um, but yeah, I think you know it, it all depends. I, I'm sure IndyCar would want to keep going back, but it depends on a matter of things. And um, you know, I think how successful the race is, and we'll have to wait and see what the TV numbers are and everything. But if I would love to come back, obviously it's a it's a great it's a great uh, um, great race, I think. Yeah, the the TV numbers weren't great. Granted, it's full March Madness last weekend, so yeah, NASCAR's uh, yeah. numbers were down a lot. IndyCar's number was not super great by any means. But uh, again, I don't know if that was a shock. I would just say, John, in terms of general vibe. Yeah, I I was one of the biggest doubters coming in, having seen every form of sports car road racing there fail, and wasn't sure where IndyCar might slot in, and I would definitely say that there's something to build upon. Wasn't massive, right? We weren't talking about, oh my god, we can't pack any more people in there. Not the case. No. Better than expected, though. I was thinking... 10,000, 12,000 might be the number of, uh, we keep hearing yeah. it might be 20, might be 25. Some have said it was 30, whatever it was. And the thing is, you could you could easily pack 30,000 people in there and the place would look empty. It's such yeah. a big place that, um, you know. I just think people, looking people at... People will say, oh, look at F1. Completely. But if, if, if IndyCar had one race in America, you don't think that they would get... Uh, a ton of people to go to it i'm yeah. sure they would no and just looking at the general reaction and the folks that i spoke with 
uh, you know, in the paddock and otherwise, just fans who were there. They loved the access, loved being there. Loved, you know, it was just a pretty cool thing for folks to get up close and yeah. be inside in a way that often hasn't been the case for the bigger events that show up. So I think there's something yeah. to build upon, John. I really do. But, you know, we're going to have to hear from Coda financially if it, if it ended up meeting their expectations. And if it did, I think there is something that they can uh, keep working with here. Uh, Tony Richard says, hey, Colton, did the fact that you appeared to be losing a little, little bit of time with each lap uh, at the end of your next lap, basically coming up to your funnel pit stop, did it make it easier to uh, stop earlier than Will Power and Alexander Rossi? Yes, and um, I only dropped back on one of my stints um, because I kept locking up the fronts, and that just destroyed them. Mm. And by the end of it, I was running a second slower, second and a half slower a lap than Rossi and Power, and then obviously Newgarden was starting to catch me by quite a bit, and we didn't want to get jumped by him, so that forced us to pit a little early, um, caught caught the break with the yellow, and then with that, didn't have to save any fuel to the end, and I was a straight shot. I'm going to rattle through a couple more here, actually quite a few, but we'll, uh, we'll get through them as quickly as we can. Got two related to possibly the most important thing of all. Jerry Siddhuth, our pal, says, I have a question for Colton. Where did you and your dad go for victory tacos? And then Grant Stouter follows up with flour or corn shells for those victory tacos. Oh, um, so for the shells, soft, uh, soft shell tacos with, uh, uh, flour and, um, and then for where I went, I went to, um, Austin Taco Project, which was okay. It's a little too hipsterish for me. But it was it was okay. My my dad was actually gone at that point. I had to stay. Uh, I, I flew out the next day because I was going to Indy, and he was going back to to LA. So um, I didn't get victory tacos with him. But we both did get tacos. Okay. Well, that's a little bit of a change. Of, Brian mentioned the plan right after the race, but it sounds like things uh, you're at least able to uh, save something. And I love the fact that uh, you found a place in Austin that was too hipster. Sorry, a little bit of sarcasm yeah. there. Um, yeah. Let's see. Can you believe it? <laughs> uh, our pal Andrew C. asks, Colton, are you afraid of heights? He says, the victory photo from the Coda Tower was awesome, but I would have been cowering on the floor oh, from yeah. fright. Uh, he says, awesome drive and congrats to the whole team. Those are some great picks, my man, but yeah. Uh, how are you I in heights? For sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd like to say I'm, I'm fine with heights, but that freaked me out for sure. The glass, <laughs> the glass on the bottom of uh, being 23 stories up, yeah, I think that'll freak anybody out. I might have mentioned this before on the week in IndyCar. Back in Indy Lights, one of our uh, chief mechanics, this would have been 95 or 96, a, a crazy guy by the name of Troy Stevens. Uh, he was the guy who would just do the thing that made everybody throw up. Whatever the situation was, he was a bit of a nut. So we were in Toronto that year for the IndyCar race, Indy Lights, and went up the uh, the CN Tower, and uh, they have the same thing, the, the little glass cutout where you can see all the way down a million miles. And so we walked out. Troy saw that, saw must have been 20 or 30 people standing around that little glass thing, but just leaning forward, looking down, but refusing to even put a toe onto it. 
And so he walks right over, kind of moves people aside, not only goes over and stands in the middle of the glass, but starts jumping up and down on it. And there were people legitimately, like, holding their mouth and stomach, like, like, try not to throw up because it was just so crazy. So, yeah, um, I, I know what you mean about the looking glass. And also with my fat butt, I'd be afraid I'd break the glass and fall through. So uh, I feel you here. Uh, we're going to go back to our man, John Sable, who says, a little bit off topic, he says, but Colton, since you spent a couple years in Europe, uh, do you know why they like staying inside the line so much? I guess referring to the Turn 19 lack of, quote, Formula One track limits being used. Um, he says, I'm contemplating heading to Austin this October with a can of white paint and narrowing up the track to say, I don't know, the width of an F1 car? I'm sure they'll appreciate the challenge, and I won't have to hear about how fast their cars are anymore. So, anyways, John taking a little bit of piss here, saying that uh, maybe our friends in F1 get too worried about uh, track limits. But any thoughts on why? Uh, I don't know why some folks got so wound up about uh, cars running wide at 19. It was, it was, yeah, it was kind of both sides, kind of people hating track limits, and then people also hating on no track limits. Um, you know what? It, it, I think a lot of people were like saying, "Oh, this is just to close the gap to the uh, to the F1 cars." But it, it wasn't for that. It was too hard for for them to police it and uh, and police it consistently. And um, because there was no clear penalty in the rule books, and they didn't want to add a rule for this event, um, it would have been if you ran over um, and you you. If let's say you go ten inches offline and then you go over the curbing and you're leading by ten seconds on the last two laps, there's two rules that say what what happens to this. If you gain an advantage when you go off, you either give the spot up to the car behind or take a drive-through penalty. And they didn't want the race to be decided like that, rightfully so. It's also fair to mention, and this is not trying to make excuses, it's just trying to explain differences, the budget offered to IndyCar for a season to run its championship compared to the budget Formula One has, and therefore the amount of staff to have in race control, the amount of technology in place for those people to use to police, they're very different things. So it's not, although it's an easy easy thing to say but it's not just well they should just get more people and well of yeah. course and i should also weigh 180 pounds and be a trillionaire but these things don't just happen because you say they should and along with the comparisons of f1 nanny car um i think you have to respect both sides of it it's good to see all the fans are super passionate about this topic but um from from my view i think you know indycar is is made for for more racing, whereas F1 is made for uh, more manufacturing cars and and uh, showing off uh, a manufacturer's ability and making a pretty kick-ass car. So can't argue there. I would also say yeah. I love the fact, Colton, that we've come out. I would say both during the weekend and also leaving the weekend, the Indy cars are slower than F1 at Coda thing. I'm not saying it didn't exist at all. I just didn't see it as in any kind of meaningful volume. It seemed like 
it was just a mostly a non-topic and the quality of racing and driving and oh my god these people are you know barely able to hold on to these things it's so yeah. crazy it seemed like that was the winning narrative which made me really and happy one thing also that i saw that was very interesting for me was um another another side of things WCLNP one all time was a 44 seven. so obviously another very quick car of comparison which was actually fairly close to an indy car so i want i was always wondering what those things are like uh and what the kind of comparison is to an indy car yeah so there you go i mean deploying 1100 plus horsepower with full uh, oh, yeah. ers and whatnot again not for the entire yeah, lap but yeah, yeah uh, having seen them <laughs> yeah they're beasts of the car Ooh, brilliant let's go to tim duckworth who says colton in front of your motorhome in the paddock at st petersburg I noticed several racing tracks chalked out on the <laughs> pavement for RC cars. He says, was one of those tracks Coda? Um, so this uh, this was obviously my 10-year-old brother's doing, um, and he actually made me make him some tracks. So so a few of those I designed um, before the weekend started. But yeah, this, these are for his uh, little die cast that he plays with. Um, no, I don't think any of them were Coda. Um but he does like to add his favorite bits of track from different tracks. So you might have uh, the corkscrew from Laguna Seca next to, uh, let's say, the S's of Coda. So he does do that. I love it. I love it. All right, let's get down to, uh, we're starting to get down to the last handful here. Let's go to Adam Smith. He says, Colton, did you know that when that last caution came out that you were set up to win, or did it come as a surprise? And he also asks... Was the elevator at the Coda Tower still broken? Um, no, the elevator works. and um, It was broken for about two maybe years. Maybe that's just what they yeah. were telling people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, uh, sorry, what was the other question? Uh, were you surprised? Well, when the last caution, when that caution did come out, oh, okay, yeah, did you yeah. realize you were, were being set up in a position to win, or was that a um, surprise? I knew if... Will and Rossi hadn't hit yet, but at that point, um, that's that's the middle stint where I dropped back so much. I dropped yeah. back like 13 seconds to him, so um, I couldn't see them, and I, I wasn't sure if they had hit already or haven't. So I knew if they didn't hit, I would be in the lead, and if they had, then uh, I would be second, I guess, with Will Powers' issues. Well, it was still impressive that you had Joseph Newgarden running right your behind, and you had to pull away from a you know the 2017 champ pull away from a team penske car and maintain that lead and win uh in your second well, i guess third overall race but second race of your first full rookie campaign sounds like i've got go-karts outside by the way so i apologize for the uh uptick in noise there uh let's see let's go to jordan darwin who says you made your usf 2000 debut four years ago a barber says being the barber is the next round does that track hold any special memories for you and he also says, what track have you driven in maybe other cars that you would love to hop into an Indy car and try it out there? Um, yes and no. Barber, I, I qualified fifth on debut in USF 2000. And I, me and Aaron Tealitz crashed together, and I got, uh, well, I don't want to say I got taken out. I'm pretty sure I just turned straight turned down on him and, and, and took myself out uh, of the race there. And... Um, but at the same time, I've had two poles there in Indy Lights, and I've, I've won a race and had uh, three podiums. So, um, 
it hasn't been a terrible track for me. And the second part of the question, um, probably IndyCar at Watkins Glen. Ooh. There's, In the old era, okay. Yeah. Well, there, there's... There, there were some mounting rumors last weekend. I'm still chasing them down. That uh, we could maybe possibly be going back to Watkins Glen yeah. in the very near future. So it wouldn't be with the crazy downforce we had, but uh, you, yeah, you might get your wish there. Uh, let's see, let's go to David Cody, who's asking about year-to-year change. Granted, you only joined the uh, the the Harding team for the final round last year, but uh, is asking. Knowing that the team wasn't always a front runner previously, besides the obvious driver change, he says, is there any other maybe important change in the team side, you think, that has really made Harding Steinbrenner so competitive to start 2019? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a pretty obvious answer here for the people I know. Um, obviously, the, the technical alliance with uh, Andretti Technologies is a huge factor of that. And, uh, yeah, that's probably a big thing. Obviously, they, they did do, before this was even a discussion about Andretti Technologies, uh, they did do a lot of revamping, and uh, they went through the car. You know, I think, you know, they, they, they were working on the dampers as well off season, and during the simulations of the dampers and stuff, they think that they already found some good stuff. So, um, but for sure, that played a big role in it. I've never heard of this Andretti Technologies team you mentioned. Um, let's really? see. Uh. No, no, no. Drawing a blank here. Uh, Horatio Frey is an interesting question. I don't know how you answer it, but I'd love to see you try. He says, congratulations. How do you make sure you don't do what Marco Andretti or Graham Rahal did after their initial success? And I believe Horatio is referring to waiting a really long time until they win again. So, uh, uh. yeah. What do you do? How do you ensure that, Colton? There is a pedal on the right side of the car <laughs> that ensures that. The more you press that one, the more you ensure being at the front. See, it it is that simple. We have just learned. Yeah. We, we've reinforced a very simple lesson here, courtesy of Colton Herta. It's it's tough. It's tough though, because um, I can't speak to them on what what was going on and stuff, but. Um, it is incredibly hard to be at the front at this level of motorsport and to be winning. It's um, it's incredibly tough. I can't even start to describe. So um, people that even get podiums in their career is incredibly impressive. But I don't think people fully understand that aspect, that it's incredibly tough to win a race, even just one. And I'll throw this in quickly, Horatio, that you mentioned Graham. When he went to the Ganassi team, I think there was an assumption, oh, boy, it's going to be so easy. Uh, Just, you know, victory lane is waiting for you. There was a definite feeling from the team, uh, some members of the team, that Graham wasn't taking full advantage of all they had to offer. Might have been youth, immaturity, something in there. Uh, There was also a pretty big disconnect between him and his race engineer. And to the point to where the race engineer more or less didn't want to hear a thing he had to say about the car. And so, again, from the outside, you might go, boy, that, that Ray Hall guy, he's forgotten where the pedal is on the right. And well, he almost won in Texas, though, didn't he? Very true. He didn't slap the wall. Very true. So, remember that, too. 
So there was that, but for the most part, that was not seen as a successful relationship while he was at Ganassi, and it's not as if he forgot where the right pedal is. Sometimes, whether it's youth, maturity, just not uh, getting working well with your engineer, there's often things that simply aren't about being aggressive. It is incredibly tough, too. You have two or three bad weekends, and you don't have the pace, and then you it's very incredibly easy, especially because they were very young as well. Um, and, and we're running for, for big organizations, big teams. It's very easy to think, maybe uh, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe I'm not good enough. So it's very easy to second-guess yourself, and then you get into a deep, dark hole. All right, we're down to our last four questions. This one from Chris Allen. Uh, I'll, I'll modify this a little bit, Chris. He's asking about uh, the IndyCar Road to, Road to Indy. Uh, the ladder system there, and wondering what it might take to get more participation, uh, maybe from a European side. He says, it feels like we have a hidden gem of a ladder series that gets overlooked with teams or drivers dreaming of uh, Formula One only only to be lost or to not hit their goals along the way. So as someone who did spend time in Europe and obviously uh, won a lot of races in Indy Lights and, and is here now as an IndyCar winner, what are the things you might say to those, you know, in Europe dreaming of F1 that maybe haven't considered the road to Indy to follow in, say, your footsteps? Um, one thing that I have to say Europe's doing a lot better now is the ladder system absolutely sucked like five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. But now they're kind of merging series together, scaling it back to have one clear path. It's a lot simpler. Um and, and obviously increases car counts as well. Um, so that is very good on what they are doing. But um, you can race for free over here if you're quick and you win a championship your first year, you race for free the next year. That, that's kind of a magical thing, I would say. Uh, no, no place else, not even no NASCAR, you know, MotoGP, you know, nothing has that. We're going to stick on this trend of Europe. This comes in from our pal Vincent. It says, Colton, what did you learn most from racing in Europe with Carlin Racing? Um, so the biggest thing with Carlin is, well, um, I was 15, and um, I wasn't extremely self-confident or headstrong there um, when, I, when I first went over there. And um, that was not good because I was living on my own over there. And that really matured me a bunch. Um, there's a few factors that played into it. One, my engineer was extremely tough on me and, um, you know, would make changes to the car, but um, always was like, no, this is what you got. You got to drive around it. You know, this is, this is your fault, blah, blah, blah. Just to get it in the mindset that, I don't want to throw him completely uh, completely under the bus. He did make changes and stuff, and obviously um, was was there for me. But um, this was more for the mindset of yeah, JetBlue. Sorry, I'm getting to the airport right now. No worries. Um, uh, but, but this is more to get into the mindset of you know drive around your problems, learn to drive the race car system uh, that it may be in, and this helped me a lot because now. I can drive a, an understeery car fast, and I can drive a loose car fast. I love it. 
Well, let's do this. Since you're getting there, I'm just going to move. We had two questions left, one from Andy Merrick. Thanks for asking that, Andy. Maybe we'll get that to Colton at a, at a later appearance, or it may even be next week. And after Barbara, you may be the new host. I might get fired here. Uh, but let's go to William Matson, uh, who says, uh, Colton, since last week you said to get the Rookie of the Year award, you're going to have to win a race, and you've won. Well, obviously the podcast is magical. Thanks for saying that, William. I'll, I'll believe that lie. Uh, he says, so what do you want next? A billion dollars, Acura NSX, got to support Honda. A pony, that's his choice for you. You know, you got that win. Uh, what's next, man? What do you want? I'll take all three of those. You know, I'd love a pony and NSX and a billion dollars. A pony um, and NSX and a billion dollars. That sounds like a, then, then a slogan. Just race forever and not even worry about sponsorship. See, that's another gift, too. And I know that you're, uh, I mentioned in the cold open as well, that uh, hopefully we'll have a, a Colton Herta t-shirt here folks can buy sometime soon. Uh, so. I actually have a really cool thing that I'm working on with, with New Era right now. Um, still in the works. It's very early days. We just started working on it after the weekend. But, um, yeah. Good. I, I love it. So hopefully uh, very soon we can kind of, announce what, what we want to do with it but wow. um to answer the question uh honestly the way felix is running um and, and even Pato after that last week and his first weekend back was extremely impressive i feel like these guys are um if if they're not going to get a win they're going to get at least a podium and they're going to get very close to winning and Felix seems to be like he's going to be very close to winning every weekend. So um, I guess I just I just have to keep on doing what I'm doing. You know, I think I've had the pace every weekend, um, obviously in, in, in qualifying in St. Pete. Um, I seem to have a pace advantage over him. And then obviously in Coda and in round two, he kicked everyone's ass. But in round three, I had a pace advantage over him. So... Um, yeah, I think I just need to keep doing that. I feel like Felix is going to be the toughest one, though. Uh, the, there'd be no reason to believe otherwise. Proven team, already. You know, he didn't have a a great week a conclusion to Coda, but he was quick there yeah. as well. I mean, again, uh, the three of you are just going to be beasts. And knowing that Marcus Erickson, although he's you know a technical rookie, but uh, certainly very experienced, it's just going to be a fascinating year to watch. And yeah, I know he had a good race going too. I think he got kind of. Big by the caution i'm not really sure what happened but he was up in the top five at some points it's gonna be an awesome year well hey i know i'm overstating the obvious but uh despite everyone being impartial blah 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 it was awesome to see you not only you win but there was just such a great feeling that everybody's little brother you know who we've loved is really coming into something pretty amazing and to see you win uh, i know a lot of yeah. folks have told you this but uh man uh, this is great for the series great for you and you know, a lot of Thank folks you. are proud of you, man. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, a bit of a shock, but uh, it was pretty cool. Well, tell Power that drum off is coming. We're going to get you the billion dollars, the actor, and the pony, and uh, we'll see what happens next. All right, my man, go hit that uh, that high-dollar jet blue flight, and uh, we'll speak soon. And coming up next, we have Kate Gunlack from Chip Ganassi Racing. Kate, it's awesome to have you here on the Week in IndyCar for the first time. I feel a little bit stupid saying that I'm having you on for the first time. This should be about your ninth or tenth time. But, uh, hey, got to start somewhere, so my apologies. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. This is 
this is really exciting to be on your show. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate your poor judgment. But uh, all right, we've got a lot of <laughs> questions for you, and you're actually in the middle of a work day, so I wanna don't want to uh, make Julian or anyone else uh, get a little pushy loose there, <laughs> angry. So yeah. <laughs> Why don't yep. we uh, just get rocking and rolling with the uh, the awesome questions that have come in and kick off with one that I thought just might be a good kind of scene setter. This comes in from okay. Gay- Gabe Argenta, who says, Hey, Kate, what's your background in racing, and what got you interested in this crazy world? Um, I grew up around racing. Uh, my dad raced vintage motorcycles um, since before I was born, and uh, my mom got into racing a bit, and... Um, she stopped doing track days and stuff whenever she had my sister and I, um, but my dad kept racing and I called, I followed him to the racetrack and, and, um, got, you know, a, a taste for it from there. You know, the, the vintage bike scene is a little more relaxed than the scene right now. Um, but it's got the same basic principles and, and that's where I really kind of started my love for, for the travel, for the machines, for the, for the race itself. And, and, um, I, pursued that through um I I know I played around with stuff in in high school with my dirt bikes and street bikes and stuff like that and then didn't get into four wheels until I got to college and um I went to the University of Pittsburgh for mechanical engineering and they had a formula SAE car there which stands for Society of Automotive Engineers and the the program is a university-based program where students design and build um a formula car from the ground up and it was an awesome it's an excellent program for anyone who wants to get into into racing or into um, any kind of auto sport or even um, any kind of program involving pedestrian cars or military or anything like that a lot, a lot of the companies pull from universities who have SAE programs so um, so I got into that and spent a couple of years with that car helping to helping to design the drivetrain for it and then helping to out the competitions and and um and then I was lucky enough to have a small formula car team within the area um actually out in Trafford, Pennsylvania called John Walco Racing yep um, actually it was Anderson Walco Racing when I started working for him and then a year later it became John Walco Racing but I stuck with John Walco for years also from my junior year of college um through uh, through the 2000s, I guess, and he kind of showed me the ropes, and he, he taught me a ton of stuff. I still keep in contact with John, and I think really highly of him, and um, he really kind of shaped my my motorsports path. And then uh, when that after that team, you know, as as most of them do, it comes down to money and drivers and everything else, and it just didn't happen one year. I had to go look for something else to do, and um, and I've been on my own you know, kind of bebopping around to different monster teams. And then um, I got, I went to work for Star Race Cars in Pacoima, California, who run the series, the Star Race, who, who were running the series. And um, and from there, I got a buddy of mine called me asking if I was interested in, in an IndyCar gig. And I said, sure. And then for the past, oh goodness, probably eight years, I've been in the IndyCar field. Well, with the, the, the Pittsburgh angle and working for Ganassi, I mean, I, I figured that was just kind of destiny there. That worked out perfectly. But <laughs> No, I put that on the top of my resume when I came here. <laughs> yeah. How cool, Born and raised Pittsburgh, yeah. 
How cool, though. I mean, and that's something you and I shared, just in the growing up in a racing family. And I think that's such a common thing. You speak with so many folks in, in whatever form of racing. And it's a mom, it's a dad, it's a brother, a sister, whatever it is. But there's there's often a family angle of introduction. Uh, also, yeah. love the, the star angle, too, having driven down there many times as a, a young mechanic or otherwise to pick up a car and, and uh, bring it back to whatever shop I was working for and build it. So, oh, yeah. How fun. How fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go to our next question here. And this is just jumping right into last weekend. Two of them that are lined up a little bit. One from Robbie Bergeron who says, What do you think caused uh, some of the long-run tire issues for Scott and Felix? And uh, Ryan Terpstra says, It seemed like both Ganassi cars struggled with tires during the race, uh, but Scott seemed to solve the issue. Uh, can you share any thoughts on what type of changes went in that might have uh, improved Scott's fortunes a little bit? Well, um, going to Coda, uh, we didn't, we, we had only tested there with the open test and um, going in there with with the Reds, it, it's a different, it's something you don't, have, you don't have any data on. You know where the Reds have been used before, where they may be similar and you get an idea of how the right, how the, the strategy might go, if what what tires me preferred over the next, but you don't really know because you haven't raced Dakota before. So you just make the best judgments that you can with the information that you have. And we we thought that we were going to um, that red was going to be preferred, and we um, both cars started on used reds, and we were quite surprised when the pace started to fall off pretty quickly. And um, so that at that point, now you have to adapt. And that's kind of the fun part between the black and the reds is is what is really going to happen in a long stint? What are you going to do with it? And then, um, so when we came to that conclusion <laughs> pretty quickly, yeah, yeah. the reds were falling off, we started adapting and um, going down plan B. And plan B comes together, usually it's in Simmons's head, but then he comes together on the pit stands and and um, and you go from there. The, the best part is that you have data from everybody else through race tools. You can see everybody else's pace. You can see who's struggling, who's not. Is this a common tr- is this a common trend? Who's going to be good on this tire? We we know that these guys are doing this and these guys are doing this. So we know what's best for us and where where are we going to make these changes so we come out in the best position for us. So that's part of the fun. The uh, the adapting. I mean, that's, uh, as we speak about every now and then on the show, it's what motor racing happens to be. It's problem-solving, but it's problem-solving through recognizing trends, adapting, uh, linear thinking. Eh, mm-hmm. Not really not really the key to success that I've found uh, on a lot of uh, timing stands. So, yeah, that's the fun. If, if you're the one who likes taking that strange box with the puzzle pieces, turning it upside down, not necessarily looking at the cover to see uh, exactly how it should look and being okay with grabbing those pieces and trying to figure out what you might have in front of you, you're probably going to hopefully be uh, joining Kate on a timing stand at some point in time here (laughs) in the future. Uh, Jerry Suddeth asks, Kate, uh, between the manufacturer body kits from 2015 to 2017 to the new 2018 Universal Aero kit, was there one that provided more of a challenge from an engineering standpoint? Um, 
Well, more pieces are always more things to change and more things to confuse yourself with. So <laughs> the less pieces, the less confused you'll be. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Um, the, the Universal Arrow Kit is, has its own challenges, as did the other kits. But this one seems to be a bit more, we're still learning about it. Everyone's still learning about it. And there are things that, you know, you, you might not think of or stuff to come across and test. So it presents its own challenges, but there aren't 35 wickers or winglets to change and this and that. And there aren't configurations, um, you know, different throughout the field. So it's, it's a little, it's a little less to change. <laughs> can be still the same as still confusing, but it's a little less to change, so less parts, less confusion. No worries at all. Let's see, let's go next to Cat S. She has a question for you, which is always a fun one to pose to an engineer. It says, Kate, what do you think your largest contribution has been to your team? You know, again, engineers, we love to talk about ourselves. Not really. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Kat asks, what do you think your largest contribution has been to the team? And then also as a follow-up, who has been your biggest inspiration in engineering? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I guess the greatest contribution that I provide to the team is that um, that I work relentlessly, I guess. Yeah. Um, sometimes in the wrong directions, but I'm still trying to make progress. It's, it's, I, never, I have, to, to a fault, I don't like saying no or that I can't do something. I always try to figure out a way how I can do it. And um, it's a, it's, it can get me sometimes where someone has to just sit me down and say, look, this, is, this isn't happening. Okay, we need to move on. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Well, I just, I have a hard time saying that I can't do something, that it can't be done or can't be figured out or can't be reasoned. And I try to to accomplish that, whatever whatever problems we have. Um, my biggest... Uh, my, my biggest inspiration I've got a, I've got tons of mentors whether they know it or not <laughs> but they, um, I've got a ton of people who I looked up look up to in the sport um, John Walco for one has always been probably my number one when it comes to, to engineers and to um, and to just just generally good people to to be around and, and to to look up to um, Chris Simmons of course is one and it's it's fantastic being able to work with him and and take his brain, and um, and he's one of the engineers, one of the few engineers in the field who has driving experience, and he's he's no slouch when it comes behind the wheel, you know. And um, having his perspective from that side um, inspired me. Do I think that all engineers need to drive something? You've oh. got to race something. You've got to get behind the wheel and do something, or else, you know, how do you really know what these guys are talking about? I'm old enough, Kate, to have seen this crazy Chris Simmons guy you mentioned uh, as a two-liter driver, and then an Indy oh, Lights yeah. driver, and then a, oh, he's become a race engineer. Well, isn't that cute? Okay, well, he's like winning <laughs> championships and Indy 500s, and okay. Oh, I, yeah. It, uh, it's, yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, he's got a pretty good track record. He's got some really cool stories. So it's, it's really good to be around him. Um, there are people that I'm you know, still around... I see time to time from my John Walco days. It's Steve Dreisler, Eric Langbein. Those are all guys that I grew up around, and um, 
and still really, really look up to. Let's go to Justin Ford sticking on a, a general theme here. Uh, Justin asks, Kate, what's your least favorite part of race engineering? Uh, and then he also asks what your favorite uh, area of expertise might be. And that's another, it's an interesting aspect too, because A, there's always something that we hate, but there's often always something where, you know, I will look at my friend Michael Cannon, for example, with the Dale Coin Racing Team. Of all the things that he can do, I know that he has specific experience in wind tunnel and uh, wind tunnel models going back decades, but just thinking about the areas where you go, ooh, this is a little something this engineer might have more experience in than others. You know, when I think of Michael, I think of, hey, there's a guy that if you're going to the wind tunnel, you want to bring him. So curious, uh, the least favorite and also maybe an area that you enjoy the most. Um, the, the least favorite part is when you don't win. <laughs> to say the least um, it's the end of the race and, and you don't finish up front that's that's probably the hardest to deal with because um, you've worked so hard during the weekend leading up to it and and most of it is out of your control during the race but it's the results can be um, pretty disappointing the, uh, the other thing that I don't like about engineering is not knowing why something happened mm. that's the worst is when you prepare 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 and it's only something happens and you're like I don't know where to start and then you have to it's that that initial feeling I do love the problem solving that's fine but it's um when it's something completely unexpected and you don't you don't or what you thought was what you assumed to be the process something changes and you're like I didn't think about that it's that feeling I didn't think about that that's what I don't like (laughs) um and um the area of expertise, there are the, the fun thing and the daunting thing about being an assistant at Ganassi is that we, we're very, we're, we're, uh, we don't have a massive engineering staff. So everybody gets to pitch in every department. So during the off season, we usually get shipped off to R and D or we get shipped off to some other department so that for one, they just need people to help and two that we gain more experience so you get to play with all sorts of different parts um, of engineering I'm, I'm not sure how other most most teams are structured pretty, pretty lean but um, but here we the assistants do a, a um, data acquisition engineer position and an assistant position so it means lots of extra projects and stuff and some of the projects that I that I really am into I, I really like um, I like one of the seven posts and playing around with scene and seeing that and seeing dampers, um, playing with aero stuff, playing with um, programming stuff. You get to have your hands in, in all of this. The answer is so it's, everything because it's cool and fun <laughs> and amazing. Well, but that's the thing. Yeah, that, that's I'm, the yeah. thing, though, Kate, is you don't, you don't do what you do if you are not filled with curiosity. Uh, so, right. uh, you know, while there might be one area or two that as your career develops might be something where you go, okay, you know, tires, really something that I understand. I feel like I have uh, super, super in-depth, you know, understanding with and so on. Um, uh, there might be an area, you know, here or there where you go, that's mine. That That's really something I feel that I grasp more than others, but not to the exclusion of anything else. Mm-hmm. 
So the fact that you kind of love everything is telling. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty. Um, awesome. And there's and the other part is that I don't have a lot of. We're not focused on one subject in particular. Is that we we're we have to focus on multiple subjects. I would love to spend just a hundred percent of my time just doing one thing, <laughs> because then you become an expert at that one thing. But we can't afford that, so everyone has to do everything, and has to be involved with everything. So it's. Um, if I could just focus on one area, like if I could just focus on, you know, seven post stuff, then I would absolutely throw myself into that and love it. But I get a section of seven post stuff, enough to be dangerous, enough to, <laughs> to really, to, uh, to have some fun with it. And then you got to move on to the next one because people need help over here. I love it. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to, now let's go to, Tim Falkowitz. So this would be a fun thing as well that I'm sure you've uh, either inherited or helped write uh, some sort of channels here. Tim's curious on the data acquisition front. How do you measure understeer and oversteer? Um, some of the best ways to to look at how the car is handling it and balance are the most basic channels that all data acquisition systems typically come with: the steering, throttle, speed. And you, then you can throw in um, your accelerometers. You can throw in um, gyroscopes as well for yaw. And um, but the, the best tools that are available to everybody are, are, are those big three. So when you're looking at how the balance of the car is, steering is probably going to be your number one go-to. You can see where. Especially if you've got a couple laps to compare it to a couple different outings and stuff, if you overlay them, you look at the steering trace, you know, more steering in a particular part of a corner will indicate balance. So if you see the steering trace suddenly take a huge dive in the middle of the corner, then you know, oh, he's got but really, really big correction into it to get through the corner, so he's steering more, so now you've got some understeer. And then you got to start backing it up from there. You think, okay, well, well why is there understeer here? Did, did we enter at the corner at the same point? Where's our minimum speed? Did we come in too fast? You know, then you back it up and start looking at other things. And then once you get the basics down, once you get understand where the handling, what is happening here, then you start looking at why that might be happening. And you can take a look into your lungs, your cells, or your damper positions, um, or displacements and stuff like that, and figure out why. But the first is to look at where and what is is generally the, the first thing you do. So steering phase easy throttle and speed no I was just going to throw in that there's a fun little uh, there has been a fun little subset of driver pride on the topic of oversteer in particular and whether it was showing one another the, uh, the, the printouts of their oversteer moments or clipping off uh, whether it was back in the old Pi Vids day or uh, just regular in car footage of how big of a moment that driver has had and recovered from. Mm -hmm. It was actually kind of fun after uh, some events, whether it was a Dario or a Justin Wilson or you name it, it was kind of a, I don't want to say poker, but kind of a one-upsmanship of like, oh, really? You thought you had a moment. We'll take a look at this. So um, it's, <laughs> it's always different and when you're looking at, at data and you say, oh, that's a pretty big one there. It's like you look at the squiggly lines, but then when you see the in-car, you're like, oh, my, that was big. <laughs> How yeah. are we not ordering a new chassis from Delara right now? Or a new driving suit. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. one of the two. Let's see. Let's go to uh, 
another kind of setup-ish type thing from Jordan Darwin. He's curious about uh, ovals and uh, treating the rear of the car in terms of camber, toe-in, toe-out. Uh, anything that might be done that's asymmetrical at the rear that you know of uh, that might be done to an IndyCar on ovals. And so this is another kind of fun area in terms of oval setup philosophy, uh, whether how asymmetrical a team might go. Some choose not to and whatnot, but just curious if you can uh, share some thoughts with Jordan on whether you might go asymmetrical at the rear of an IndyCar on an oval. Sure. Um, oval cars are a completely different beast than road course cars in that asymmetry is very common. Uh, front and rear. And if you take a look, if you walk through the garages and you have to see one, you know, one of the cars at an oval and things up in the air, uh, it looks broken. It looks like one corner's ha- fallen off and one's fallen in. Um, so every corner looks goofy. And then the first time you see it, you're like, I don't know if that's okay. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's, just, it's okay. It's all right. And you have to think about how the car is going around the corner and it's only experiencing load and, well, just being loaded in all directions, but majority of the load in a specific direction. And so the car is set up for that. So if you take a look at, at the rear wheels hanging off the car, it looks like the um, the outside or the, the right side tires are cambered in, so it looks like they're falling in. And then the left side tires are out, so it looks like they're falling off the other way of the car. But if once the car is under load, those tires are going to straighten up and provide even contact patches on both sides as it's going through the corner. And the same thing with toe as well. And what's kind of cool about the Noble car is that you the car kind of steers itself into the corner. The driver shouldn't make a big correction to steer the thing in the corner. It's very slight, very little bit of steering movement. That's because the car is doing most of the work. You can set that up with toes as well, with asymmetric toes, so that the car kind of points almost itself into the corner instead of the driver turning it. I think I might have told this very brief story on a episode of the Week in IndyCar, I don't know, a year or two ago, but one of the smaller and less able uh, IndyCar teams I worked for, which is probably why I worked for them and why it was a perfect match, uh, going into, I think, the 2000 season, we did not have an actual race engineer, and so the team decided to, I don't know if I want to say promote our chief mechanic, but basically say, well, you've been doing this for decades, you probably know this stuff, uh, you make the engineering calls too. And oh boy. I think, uh-huh. yeah, we were at Phoenix, I believe, and I think Davey Hamilton was our driver, and the vehicle was undrivable. It was the first time in my, first and only time, Kate, where a car was so bad during the race, the driver pulled in and the team said, we're going to go back to the garage, put it on the setup pad, and oh, wow. make, make a change, like a change big enough that you would not do while sitting on pit lane. Therefore, you're going to go down a couple laps, of course, with it being Phoenix and being short. But the car was so bad, uh, the only solution was uh, two solutions, either quit, get out and stop, or try and throw something at it. And... Uh, the dear uh, chief mechanic uh, who had been around forever and worked for some legendary drivers but really was only someone who had received instruction on engineering might have gone back to the 60s on this one because I seem to recall he threw uh, was something like a quarter inch of toe in at the left reef. And yes, 
Um, I never knew how wide Davy's eyes were until he came in after his first exploratory lap. So just your mention of the car steering itself. Yes, the rear of the car <laughs> with a quarter inch of additional left rear toe-in thrown at it. It indeed was trying to get to the corners before the front of the car. And uh, yes, dear Davy pulled in and said, guys... I'll look forward to seeing you at the next race. And I believe at that uh, point, um, Tim Neff was hired to come in. Oh, really? Yes. And Tim, uh-huh. who is an excellent engineer, uh, got things in shape uh, pretty quickly. And me as the assistant engineer said, okay, there's not a lot of, not a whole lot I could do for you until we got a proper race engineer here. So that was fun. Yeah. In, in a, thank God I wasn't in the car kind of way. Uh, yeah. Ooh, wee. Wee. That was fun. Um, yeah. All right, let's go to our our pal Vincent, who says, Kate, uh, Scott Dixon is known for his amazing drives while saving fuel. Um, What has been the thing that has impressed you most about Scott, either in or out of the car, that isn't (laughs) fuel-related? That isn't fuel-related. He is is fantastic at doing that. Um, When you take a look at Scott's speed traces versus... Um, other drivers or teammates and this and that. What he does with his speed trace and how he enters the car, how, enters the corner, and how he drives the car is extremely impressive to me. He his minimum speeds are, you know, they're just like how are you? How are you just releasing the brakes there? How you know? <laughs> you start looking. It's like how is that possible? Because it's always just release the brake. Well, no, he's doing a bunch of other things, and it's his style, and it's, it's how he how he steals the car. Um, I think is absolutely just unbelievable. The, uh, it's something that you don't see often, and it's something that you you take Scott's feedback as a sensor, and you, it's, it's very rarely you look back and you're like I think you're I think you're driving through this the wrong way. You know, I think you're taking the wrong line here. Which for I mean. To be honest, who might tell Scott Dixon to take the wrong line through the corner? I don't. I'm not driving this thing, <laughs> but I can just look at data and look at this. But, um, but yeah, it's almost you. You use his feedback as, as a sensor. It's calibrated. It's good to go. It's interesting. I think it's to probably see one of the most impressive things. Completely, and it's just interesting to see how the way Scott does what he does and there's so many aspects to it but how unlocking that code trying to deconstruct what he does the fuel side that's been picked up by many and I think that's almost become an expected part of a driver's game today but there was a point Mm -hmm. where he was so far ahead of everyone else that folks realized oh if I don't try and get close to his level or match it then I'm always going to be, you know, prone to him beating me at a race. What are some of the other things that he happens to do, uh, whether it's outlap, cold tire management, you know, some of the just basics of driving, uh, just so many things where you go, huh, all right. And you, I mean, that should be happening in every series where you look at the top one, two or three drivers and say, okay, obviously you have crazy talent. We can't necessarily replicate talent in another driver, but we can at least try and understand what makes some of the best so good and see if there are patterns or habits or uh, maybe mindsets, uh, methodologies that can be applied to improve ourselves. Mm-hmm. And just been cool to see Scott has been that blueprint uh, for quite some time now. Um, and there are a lot of other drivers who have gotten better 
just because he's there and they can try and break down whatever he does so very cool on that front and the fact that you get to watch and look at all of the live telemetry coming in um yeah i'm surprised more drivers aren't trying to you know look over your shoulder or got long zoom lenses um you know trying to see all the, the secrets yeah it's, it's fun when you sit back and think about it once in a while you're like man this is this is like a once in a lifetime kind of driver you know you don't always get a chance to to work with someone of scott's caliber so it's it's once in a while you sit back and you're like man this is really cool <laughs> this guy's really good let's get into our last couple of questions here kate and then we're gonna let you get back to work uh daniel kinkade has a question about race strategy at coda uh, regarding whether uh, a four-stop strategy or three-stop strategy might have been the best thing daniel says uh um, simon pagino said that he uh would have been on for a very good result before the yellow um, and he's wondering if the Ganassi team had any plans to try and go for uh, four stops, or did the uh, any data or pre-race anything suggest that maybe that might not be the way to go? So curious if there was a particular X number of stops uh, approach that you found was, or the team said, this is what we're going to try and do, and it's the best way to go. from the weekend and our past history and stuff, we thought a three-stop is, is very doable with big windows. And um, and then we said, okay, well, what else can we do? And then, well, what about two stops? You know, it's worked at, at Mid-Ohio for um, for some guys, and maybe that's with enough flow. You never know, because it's Coda and first race. You don't know what the yellow percentages are going to be here and and how quickly, you know, um, they're going to respond to them. What you know, you're always looking for that. When when are the yellows going to come out? And you don't really know here, so maybe the two stop wasn't wasn't um, the best way to go. But just something you got to start thinking about if there's a lot of yellow, you have to adapt to go to two. Um, but three stops gives you a big win. But the other thing is you don't know how long the tires are going to go. Mm. So you walk into the race and like, well, if if these things hold on, then we're going to go this many laps. And if they they don't, we got to get off these things fast or. You know what's the what's the pace difference going to be between new and used, or you know someone comes out on um, on new tires and they're going to be you know two seconds faster than everybody else. Like holy cow, that's a, that's a huge advantage. So you don't know that yet, especially here. So this is this is a really kind of a, a gamble race. I think you know Laguna might be the same thing for us because we haven't been there. Well, we don't have the, a, a recent history. So it's mostly when it comes between you start looking at fuel with new what you think you can do and then it all comes on the tires and then it's um so we decided to go with a with a three stop but it's when in that big window are you going to pit and that's when it comes down to tire performance and how much people are gaining on on new and used tires um and where are we on a pack are we going to come out and attack people are we going to get stuck behind this guy when last time this guy pitted he's on tires that are older and used we're going to come out on new ones because they're not behind them um you know, you start looking at that, so it's, now you have these gigantic windows, and then you gotta pick the right time. And we did get caught up by that yellow at the end as well, same as Simon and the other um, top front runners there, Rossi. Um, yeah, that was, that, because we, we fought back pretty hard after um, our first stint wasn't super good, and Scott was passing cars left and right in the middle, in the middle of the race, and okay, we're gonna be in a good position here and um, just 
should have pit one lap earlier, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We're always pretty awesome on strategy once the race is over. Oh yeah, I should have done oh, this. Yeah. That would have been awesome. No, the answer was this, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Everybody look. knows after the race what the strategy should have been. See if you just ask if we if I could choose what we should have done after the race, boy, would have we would have won for sure. Uh, let's right. go to Ryan Ward, who says, Kate, if you could open up one area of the current chassis for development, what would it be that interests you the most, and why? Um, let's see. Man, there's there could be there are so many. There's a lot of potential. A lot of places. <laughs> so, um, you know, probably open up the arrow kits a bit hmm. because there's so much potential there, and it's it's fun. Arrow's fun because it's something you can't see. You have to just get data on and then see performance and feedback. But it's it's not like um, you get damper moving or or other parts of the car moving, but it, you can't see it, so it makes it a little bit more hard to. To play with, but opening up just a little bit. I wouldn't go full bore because that's gonna that's gonna separate the field. Um, but maybe some things that you could you could add or or tape or remove or come up with your own ideas for or something like that. Just just little little areas you might be able to improve. It's it's a Pandora's box that one, so that, that might be too hard to regulate. Um, other areas, maybe, maybe opening up. Well, the some things are so so efficient on the car and just done so well. It's like you don't want to screw it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, we could we could do a lot with electronics and sensors as well. Opening that up a bit, opening up control to the logger a bit more, so we can write our own kind of code and um, I mean, Cosrus project provides provides the system and it's very it's very user friendly very friend based and we like getting into the guts of stuff we like looking beyond and doing our own thing and we very particular capacity of doing our own thing so opening that up would be would be pretty interesting as well i'm pushing for helmet wings that's my thing i figure helmet wings that might just be really weird and strange <laughs> and hey you wouldn't need to use the chin strap anymore right uh, there you go. Yeah, just just keep it on the head. Yeah. Now you see why I'm a reporter instead of an engineer. All right, <laughs> uh, we've got one here from Nick Dovniak. And this, I know you are, you are as active as you can be, trying to inspire young women, older women, women of any age, young men, you name it. Uh, whether it's it's STEM education, whether it's more specific to motor racing. Uh, you ha- you put in a lot of hours and make yourself available for uh, anything you can do to help uh, add to the diversity in our world. So Nick's asking about, are there any female role models that you have turned to uh, in your journey in this sport? And I might even throw in one uh, to go with Nick's about, are you how do you manage or accept the fact that you might be perceived as a role model for some, even though uh, you're, you know, still uh, on the way up in your own profession. <laughs> That's very humbling to hear. <laughs> um, it's not something that you think about daily, for sure. Um, 
there are, let's see, there are countless women that have come before me in the sport who, you know, I'm lucky enough to read about or to have met in person. And, and there's a million like Janet Guthrie. Oh. <laughs> and, um, I mean, even people outside of the sport, like, you know, Sally Ride or, you know, Andre O'Connor or, um, you know, people who have taken a big risk without, from my perspective, without having that, that ladder or that support tower to climb up on. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can look, I can read about Janet Guthrie and I'm like, oh, she did, I can do it too. You know, but who did Janet look up to? I, I don't, you know, there's that kind of thing. So that's, when you meet women like that, you're like, oh, I'm in the presence of someone very impressive. Yeah. Um, so stuff like, um, yeah, so apart from some big names like that, I mean, there are people in our series right now, we've got a great group of women in the series and all who, we, we, you know, we push, our, push each other, we um, kind of inspire each other. Like, I love to talk to Kara Adams. <laughs> she, oh, I could, and we just go to lunch and just talk with her and just, I'm like, oh, yes, I know I can do my job better because I talk to Kara and now I feel good. But, you know, it's great. <laughs> or Danielle, my teammate Danielle. Same thing. Like, she, she is so much better at me in areas I'm like, oh my God, I gotta learn about this. But Danielle, how do you do this? Well, come over here and teach me how to do this. Teach me this, teach me this. It's it's so nice having that network. And um, it's pretty, um, I don't say it's, it's almost like I'm spoiled because I have these women right next to me and that I've had these women who come before me that I can just sit there and like glean information off of. And we're in, the, we're in an area, um, <clears throat> in an era nowadays where there's a lot of support for women out there and a lot of people are speaking up and, and there's a lot more press about women who are doing things that are out of the ordinary for today's world. And it's just so inspiring to read all those stories. Well, that's awesome. The, I mean, and it's, it's amazing just to think how far things have come in my own career in the sport and how... Mm-hmm. You know, ignorance and chauvinism and stupidity was just uh, not just normal but almost expected uh, for so long if you weren't acting like a moron and having some sort of prejudicial opinion towards women being in the sport as drivers by and large but then also from a technical role team-based role I mean that was just the norm forever and it's uh, of all the things that I enjoy today and what I do, it's the ability to realize while we aren't there yet just how far we have come and uh, just also maybe realizing that there's no reason to believe we won't be in a place where the average pit lane in name the racing series is just full, it looks like your average office, right? People of all colors, faith gender, you know you name it, every possible type of person that you would see going to work, you know, in your cubicle or, you know, in the uh, break room getting your coffee, you go, yeah, that's normal in the world. And mm-hmm. it's been weird. Yes. That yeah. Our I'm little so world. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Our little world yeah. hasn't been like that. It's kind of been, you know, the, the white male party. And you go, hey, I really like the idea of this becoming a better 
a better image of the uh, the world at large instead of this little specialized place that we have. So, well, let me let me close on this, Kate. Uh, so you and your role now a championship winning assistant engineer on the number nine uh, Honda there at Ganassi. I would assume you haven't said, you know, I want to be an assistant engineer for the rest of my life. This is as far as I want to go. Uh, what comes to mind? Uh, where do you think you are at in the growth and learning, uh, from growth and learning standpoint as an assistant engineer to one day becoming a full bore race engineer? Is it a opportunity thing? If, if the job opens up, then you'll take it. Is it a at some point, I'm going to start pushing for it. Just curious how you view the next couple of years of your career, where this transition, you know, may very well happen. Um, I am not satisfied being an assistant engineer for the rest of my life, uh, for sure. <laughs> I don't like radios that much. Um, no, I, I want to. The goal is just to move up. Is to is to follow the ladder to move up and to eventually to run a car. Um, I think I'm a couple years out, but everybody's going to think they're a couple years out. No one's ever going to be like, okay, now I'm ready. No, it's just, you usually get thrown into the position um, and you don't feel you're ready, I'm assuming, at least talking to some of the people I know, and you, and you just, you adapt, you migrate, or you die. And that's how it goes. <laughs> and um, you... I don't, know, I don't think anyone's ever maybe 100% ready to do to do that to make a jump in any kind of career but I think I feel like I'm a couple years out for sure but um, the other thing is I think you really gotta fight for it too no one's gonna hand it to you no one regardless of your position too especially if you're good at you doing something like oh this person's really good at this let's just keep them here and I think that you have to fight tooth and nail for the position and constantly put yourself out front and say, well, I'm, I want to do this. I just remind her I want to do this. This is what I want to do. I don't want to do this forever. So um, it's not a it's not a corporate gig where you, know, you might get promoted or you're in line for promotion. There's there's none of that here. It can be, it's tough. I think it's tough to break into that, that role. Well, as someone who took many, many years, far too long, to break out of the assistant engineer role and didn't spend that long outside of it, I can tell you that as someone who possesses far more talent than I ever did, uh, keep kicking ass, Kate. Keep pushing, keep doing what you're doing because it will come not out of just, you've been here, all right, she's been around long enough, let's let her do it. Yeah. Just, you know, you prove your worth, you prove your talent, and it will happen. Uh, hopefully with Chip Ganassi Racing, they also have a lot of, you know, racing programs there, so... I'm excited for you, and I hope that uh, in the not-too-distant future, yeah, we're, uh, we're talking to race engineer, IndyCar race engineer, IMSA, whatever it might be, something where you get to do the thing that you dream of doing. So uh, I have no doubt it's going to happen and look forward to reporting on it when it does. Well, hey, thanks for taking some time, pal. Like I said, I know I probably set you back a little bit on the workday there, but uh, I'll call Chip. Uh, we'll, make, we'll smooth everything yeah. over. It's okay, we just work a half day anyway, 7 to 7. No big deal. Good. good. See? <laughs> Kate, thanks again, pal, and uh, look forward to having you back here on the show soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was 
I'm like, it's very exciting to talk to you and to be on the show. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. You're a nut, but keep doing what you're doing. Renus, I'm so happy that we have you here on the Week in IndyCar podcast. I know that between yourself and Oliver Askew, I'm fairly confident the 2019 Indy Lights Championship is going to be settled between one of you two madmen. Uh, you're back home in Holland, so I'm glad you're able to take some time for us here. Got some great questions for you, too. You said you've, uh, you've seen some of those come in. Some of them are going to be a blast for me trying to pronounce stuff, so... Uh, why don't we start rocking yeah. and rolling? Yeah, sure. Let's start it. So our first question here from Robbie Bergeron. He says, Renus, what attracted you to racing in the USA versus going through the traditional European open-wheel ladder all the way to Formula One? Yeah, okay. Very good question. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's what a lot of people ask me. But um, yeah, I think the, the Master Road to India, how it was before, which is now the Road to India, with the, uh, with the scholarship system, it's uh, very unique, and it gave me, uh, um, yeah, it gave me and other drivers uh, a big chance to uh, to get towards the IndyCar or very close towards the IndyCar, and um, just on talent. And I think that's um, that's what what the road to Indy is uh, is known for, and also the the high level of racing and uh, the amount of uh, experience you, you get, um, yeah, you get to know when you drive in a master road to Indy is just uh, it's just amazing. Let's go to Ryan Ward, and this is one that I'm sure some Americans like myself, I, I kind of know the story, but this is still a good one to share. Ryan says, whose idea was it to change your last name, and how did you or they come up with VK? Okay, that's also a very good one. Um, so, um, when I first went to America to um, to uh, announce that I was going to drive in the uh, USF 2000 in 2000. 17. So I went to Indianapolis in 2016 for the 100th running of the 500, and there I met Anders Krum from um, um, from Coldforce, which is uh, he's the a management. Uh, the worst human um, being I've ever sorry. met. Oh my God, I can't stand. He's terrible. <laughs> oh, no. he's so funny, and he can also him. talk Dutch. I know. I love him. He, he's a dear friend. Oh yeah, he's a great guy. Always fun to be around, and. Um, well, he said, well, you have to change your name because it's too difficult. So, um, well, as maybe a lot of you know, uh, Robert Dornbos is the uh, driver before me in the United States, and they changed his name to Bobby D. So, um, Bobby yeah, Doorknobs. We thought, well, Bobby Doorknobs is what we call them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, we, uh, we knew we were going to change the name, and then, we first had CK, like two letters, the V and the K from Fun and Collinshout, which is my real name. And um, but that was just two letters; it wasn't really a name because in America it's CK, and in Dutch it's VK. So we wanted to be the same everywhere. And then um, one reporter, he uh, a Dutch reporter, he wrote down CK like as it is now. So the whole word, the, the whole name, and um, yeah, that's how we thought. Well, that looks cool. And we just, uh, we just, uh, yeah, made up the name and, and got it. If you had gone with Renus and then just the letters V and K, I think folks would have mistaken you for a DJ. So I think, I think spelling oh, it yeah. out, V-E-E-K-A-Y, I think you made the uh, the right choice there. Uh, yeah, my, I think so. 
Michael Goodyear says, uh, what's it like having Ari Leyendike, someone who a friend of mine nicknamed Harry Lunatic a long time ago. Um, what's it like having Ari Leyendike as a mentor? Uh, Michael says, I was reading online that he is really trying to, you know, wanting to take you under his wing, uh, which is a testament to your talent and the potential he sees in you. He says, uh, what's the best Ari story you have so far? So far? And what kind of wisdom has he been able to impart for you? Yeah, Ari is, uh, is uh, a person that really uh, changed my career, actually. So I met him um, at the 100 running of the Indy 500, and um, I just met him as, as a fan, actually. And then uh, my first year in USF, he started following me. And, um, well, now my race in Indy Lights, he's standing there next to my parents, very nervous watching my race. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I can call it my... Uh, my racing father now, but yeah, Arias uh, is an amazing guy to to have around, and he has so much experience, and he also made mistakes in the past, and um, yeah, he just he just tells me what not to do also sometimes because uh, he learns from those mistakes. But yeah, he he has uh, so much experience, and he tells me um, tells me everything. So on the ovals, he, he he doesn't tell me what to do, but he says if you have the opportunity, try. To um, try, if you have time, try it, and then uh, yeah, t- tell me what you think. So um, yeah, he gives a lot of suggestions instead of uh, instead of uh, tips actually. But yeah, it's um, a great guy, and I think the best Ari story. Well, um, we were gonna go uh, to the Chris Griffiths Memorial Test in 2017 uh, for my first Indy Lights test when I came out of the USF 2000 and uh, we came with the rental car coming up the track and a guy who worked on, on, the, on the speedway, he told us not to park there because uh, it wasn't allowed, yeah, we weren't allowed to park there. And then um, Ari, he showed him his fist with the ring on, the Indy 500 <laughs> winning ring, and the, the guy's mouth, it falls open and Ari just steps out of the car and parks it there. And the guy didn't complain him anymore. So. I'll park wherever I want. <laughs> that was very funny. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh. Oh, I mentioned yeah. uh, I mentioned to you at St. Pete after uh, after you won there that I actually had an interview scheduled with Ari, which happened to start right at the beginning of the second St. Pete Indy Lights race, and it was kind of funny because normally when you're trying to interview someone, you want their full attention so you can you know communicate eye to eye whatever he insisted and this is a all positive he was like okay but uh where's the tv so what we ended up finding a place we could sit down where he could look over my shoulder the entire time and watch your race and we didn't have a we knew it was going to take at least 15 20 minutes to record the interview and uh we start uh, we start getting towards the end, which was like the last five laps of your race, and here you are about to win your first Indy Lights race, and he's kind of gesturing to me like the you know cut stop stop while I'm trying to you know finish the interview here, yeah. and it was just because he uh, all, yeah it's so funny all he wanted to do was get down to uh, pit lane to see you and congratulate you uh, on your first win. So I'm like, how cool is that? That you know I've known Ari for a long time, yeah, love him, etc. Cool. But he he wanted to help me with my interview, 
but he was more interested in being there to support his boy. And yeah, that, that's just that's pretty darn cool, man. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and uh, to have a legend around me uh, rooting for me so hard—that's uh, that's a great feeling, of course. Let's go to uh, our pal Rick Radica, who says, uh, "Renus, what part of racing excites you the most?" And he also wonders, is there a certain type of food or drink that you say you must have on a race weekend to get yourself prepared? Yeah, so I think that the, the best part of, of racing is, um, yeah, I think just the feeling, just enjoying what I love the most, and uh, which is driving race cars as, as fast as possible, but also um, the super hard work we put in, uh, to win and if you finally win and it all works out yeah that's that's, that's really satisfying a really satisfying uh, feeling and um, yeah I think that's that's the part like the, the euphoria you get when you win it's, uh, it's amazing what about the uh, the special food or drink is there anything where you say alright this, this is kind of my magic formula to go out and win or get your mind right um yeah, I have a I have a personal trainer who is around, and he just gives me gives me all kinds of drinks. But mostly, it's um, it drinks with uh, a lot of electrolytes to uh, keep me hydrated, because you lose a lot of uh, a lot of uh, water when you're driving. And for the rest, um, yeah, he gives me some some energy bars sometimes for driving. But also, I use um, caffeine chewing gum. And um, yeah, it, it really helps me to uh, to focus some more, and uh, it gives me a very sweet taste when I drive, so I don't get the, the weird uh, taste in my mouth. <laughs> I was hoping you're gonna say I go to Waffle House and have three huge waffles with syrup on it and bacon and sausage. I mean, you know, you're young no. and you have like zero percent body fat, which I hate about you, by the way. But you know, as you get a little <laughs> older. You know, come on, man. We need to develop some bad habits for you. Yeah, no, you can't no, be eating correctly and drinking correctly all the time. No, the waffles is what I eat after winning. All sure. right, all right. See, now we're <laughs> but, on to something here. You know, we don't really eat waffles in the Netherlands, so um, I'm starting to get a little bit American now. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, just, um, it's just a matter of trying and everything. So I had my first... Um, I had my first beef jerky in uh, in Texas. Really? What did you think of it? Yeah, it, it's weird. It's um, quite tender, I must say. But uh, yeah, it's, it's quite quite nice. Good good uh, good taste. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a little weird that you've never eaten it. Oh, completely. I I would imagine it's a very strange yeah. thing, but. Well, good. We don't want to introduce yeah. you to too many bad things in America. I mean, you know, we don't want you to become no. uh, a fat ass like me. But, you know, we'll get you to enjoy a few things. We're going to get Robin Miller to take you to the uh, Indiana State Fair like he does with uh, a lot of IndyCar drivers every year. And you can have your first per- pork tenderloin sandwich if you haven't had one already. And just oh. all manner of fried okay. animals and stuff where you would think oh. this is this is where America's obesity problem starts. Right here. Okay, uh, let's go. To, okay. Let's go to a couple of fun questions here, uh, both from Daniel Kincaid and Patrick on Twitter. I said, "For Renus, were you motivated during the Asian Winter Formula Three series, with most publications only talking about it because Red Bull sent Dan Tictum there, 
he said, how did you feel to comprehensively dominate him knowing he will, more likely than not, be in Formula One next year? And then Patrick also adds, was it difficult for you to stay humble and grounded after dominating Red Bull's hope of a future Formula One star in the Asian F3 series? Yeah, well, of course, um, it's really nice to, to win a championship there and uh, beat a few of the best guys uh, in the world on paper. And, um, yeah, I, I, I went there without expectations just to to uh, try to show uh, what I can do. But, um, yeah, I didn't expect to win first attempt there. And, um, yeah, I think Daniel uh, was a really quick driver. The testing, I learned a lot from him. But, uh, yeah, then in the races, I think, uh, yeah, my racecraft was right there. And, uh, yeah, it uh, showed up for some really good racing. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm happy that I've beaten him. But, um, yeah, I feel a little bit sorry that he cannot go to F1 because of me. <laughs> <laughs> I love your, the, fact yeah. that, the fact that you threw in some of the best on paper, I look, see. I don't miss stuff like that. That's a great yeah. little uh, little mention. Yeah, there, because that's why I love a, you. A man. lot of uh, a lot of people they they think the level in America isn't as high as in Europe. But yeah, how do they know? Because uh, they've never driven against each other. So um, yeah, I that was one of my um, one of my uh, goals to to show how high the level is in America. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I did that. Let's go to Michael Goodyear again. He asked something, actually it was an item you and I were speaking about between ourselves uh, right after the podium at uh, Coda, the IndyCar race. He says, uh, what is Hunkos Racing's biggest strength, that being your Indy Lights team, for those who don't know? Uh, and Michael says, obviously we've seen the success the team has had on the road to Indy, uh, but they've yet to make that breakthrough in IndyCar. Uh, he's curious about what do you see as the biggest thing they bring to the table in terms of helping you to build future success? Well, I think um, they're, um, uh, the, the way they're driven, they, uh, they, they go, for, go for me to, uh, yeah, to make the car better, to make me better, and um, just the passion, I think the South American passion it's just crazy. They are so, um, yeah, they're so crazy into racing, and it's all they have. All that it's, it's their lives. So, um, yeah, I think uh, as you know, last weekend was a little bit tough in Coda, and um, well, I've spoken with them, and they're so excited to make the car better for the next race, and they're working so hard. So, uh, yeah, it's really a team that doesn't ever give up, and. Um, they're just, uh, yeah, they're so passionate. They, they, they will not stop uh, believing in themselves, and I think that's a really good uh, good, uh, good thing. That's another interesting point to get into, Renus, while we're here on this, which is Andretti Autosport obviously dominated last season, 1-2 with Pato Ward and Colton Herta. They're still, I would say, the, the favorite, if you look at coming into the new season, just based on what they accomplished last year. Uh, Oliver Askew just won both rounds in Coda. You won one race with Home Coast at St. Pete. Bellardi got the other. So there, there's definitely, you know, two or three, call them top teams that are standing out. Fair to say the, the Andretti team, though, is looking, you know, very strong. 
do you feel like you can, over a full championship, take it to them and maybe get that $1.2 million advancement prize? Yeah, I'm, I'm very confident that uh, with Junkos Racing, we can beat, uh, beat Andretti. And uh, I think with, uh, with the consistency we have, I think, uh, yeah, it, it will be all good for the championship. And last weekend wasn't the best for me. But still, a second and a fourth place isn't something to be ashamed of. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough. It's going to be a really tough year. But the last two years for me were really tough. And I finished second and first. So, um, yeah, I just cannot wait to go to, uh, to other tracks and get further into the championship and, uh, yeah, try to win more races. Got a question here from one of your countrymen, Peter Nutt, who always sends in great stuff, inquiring about your sponsor, Jumbo. Um, he says, Renus, after Robert Dornbos, you are our next Dutch Hope and in IndyCar. He says, your sponsors are Dutch, but Indy Lights doesn't have a lot of coverage here at home. He says, how important is it for yeah. you and your partners to reach IndyCar? Uh, he said, is Jumbo committed to uh, helping you make that step? Then he also adds in, if I go to my local Jumbo supermarket more often, would that increase the chances of you being, say, in a Hunkos car at the Indy 500 to give Colton Herta a run for his money? Um, well, uh, I think uh, to go to the ju- uh, Jumbo store and buy as much as possible is a good thing. Just keep <laughs> doing that. And, uh, and for the rest, uh, yeah, I think Jumbo is very uh, very happy with how I'm doing and how I represent the brand. And... Um, yeah, I think uh, towards the IndyCar, they're really committed. They were already in my whole uh, auto sports career. So, um, yeah, Fritz, the owner of Jumbo, is an amazing guy with amazing passion of uh, of the sport. And, um, yeah, it's just great to have a person like that around me. It's something, too, Renus, that, you know, again, knowing that while this is not an American company that folks here following Indy Lights would know, it is phenomenal when you have, when you do have a major uh, brand name in your home country that has said, hey, we're behind you. We want to help you go forward in your career step by step. I mean, one thing that maybe folks have noticed, or I hope they would, if they've seen your car, is it's carrying the Mazda scholarship colors, right, with that Mazda Soul Red and the Mazda branding. Usually in the past, those Mazda scholarship-sponsored cars really only have Mazda. The fact that you've got Jumbo there, right next to you, you know, on the sides of the cockpit, it's a bit unique, yeah. which, which says something that, hey, this isn't just a little tiny thing, this is actually a company that is committed to you, and they want to be on that car, which goes a little bit against the norm of what we've seen, so I, I just take that as nothing but a positive, hopefully, for the future. Yeah, um, it was, uh, for us also, a little bit different to have... Uh, Jumbo and Mazda on the car because we've also never seen it before and um, yeah well Mazda is is uh, amazing to have on the car because of the scholarship but also um, also for the future we have um, we have Jumbo and uh, I think my biggest thing for them my biggest thank you for them is to represent them as well as possible and also Laplace uh, which is uh, which is my second big sponsor. It's uh, the same owner, but it's uh, a healthy food chain, I should say. And um, 
yeah, I also try to represent that and uh, yeah, and give them uh, the best uh, yeah the best place on the car as possible. Well, that's where you get your caffeine chewing gum, I believe. Is that the uh, is that the correct store where you get that? Actually, not. I buy it on uh, on the internet. But um, yeah, you were supposed to say yes. It's from, amazing, uh, and it's so healthy, and I thank them yeah, so but, much. But I'm just giving you a hard time, son. Yeah, I it's know, but um, but it, it's not a it's not a big company where I buy it from. But it's from a Dutch uh, cyclist, which is very famous in the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, it's quite good stuff. So I keep using it. All right, you're you're crazy, but we love you. All right, let's get to your last two questions. <laughs> this comes in from Andy Merrick. Uh, he says, uh, when you think through the various things that you do that make you a good driver, is there one item that you think might be the top attribute? Uh, something when again, you think of how you do what you do. Uh, is there one thing that stands out where you're like, huh, ah. that might be unique to me or, or my best thing? I think... My consistency, hmm. what I showed in the past uh, seasons, we're just finishing, um, yeah, in the points all the time and uh, always trying to be in the top five or on the podium. I think for a championship, that's that's a thing I'm pretty good at. <laughs> and for uh, yeah, for the rest, I think my racecraft is um, yeah, is quite good. If you see that I. Um, mostly finish higher than I start from so yeah that's not a bad thing uh, let's go to the final no, no. let's go to the final question this from another one of your countrymen uh, it says Renus you are supported by the talent first program of the Royal Dutch Autosport Federation he says what does this program do to help you especially as you are so far away from the European scene and Henri also says and can we get Marshall to pronounce your real last name properly? To which the answer, Henri, as you know, since I'm nicknamed the last name Assassin, there's no chance uh, of me pronounce. I, how's this? I, VK I'm good with. Beyond that, it's just pure embarrassment. But uh, what is the uh, World Dutch Autosport Federation? How do they help you uh, with what you're doing here so far away from home? Um, they try to, to make me, uh, actually, they try to make me better outside of driving. So they help me with, um, uh, uh, yeah, my mental strength and also physical. They uh, they try to uh, to see what I can do, but also uh, with driver simulation, they um, yeah they uh, uh, finance all my uh, sim uh, sim days on the simulator with uh, Atze Kirkhoff, who is uh, yeah I think one of the the best simulator guys in the Netherlands. So uh, yeah. That's that's where I uh, practice a lot with driving, and uh, they all finance it. Well, happy you're here. Happy to have seen you rise up the ladder, Renus, and uh, get to each new step based on not just talent, but success and winning. Right, uh, at least in watching you since you have come over, you are you do exactly as you mentioned. Wherever you're starting, if it's not on pole you tend to go forward and that continuous effort like you did last weekend it was not it wasn't going to be a winning weekend for you but rather than accept whatever position you were on track there's that fighting spirit in you which reminds me you know of a lot of IndyCar drivers who've had very successful careers so it's been fun watching you even just now 
as you're getting into Indy Lights to see that spirit of whomever is in front of me, <laughs> don't get comfortable because I want that spot. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. That spirit's only going to help you as you move forward, son. So I hope we're going to have you on here uh, a lot more while you're still on the road to Indy. And then hopefully when we're talking about a beautiful jumbo-sponsored Indy car in the years to come, my man. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, let's, let's make it all happen. And that was Renus VK. Seriously, this kid, I'm telling you, he's uh, he is something special. A lot of the kids in Indy Lights, Indy Pro 2000, USF 2000, they give us those markers, those indicators that they are built from something different and can go far. Uh, Renus has been telling us that just through his actions, through his driving, through his true attacking style he's been telling us that from the moment he showed up on the road to indian i'd be shocked if this kid is not truly following in ari leindyke's footsteps as an indycar winner and as a genuine star of the future so excited for him excited for oliver askew robert mcginnis i'm hoping zach claiming to mellow and you know run down the list i wish all the drivers david malukas who i just wrote about I mean, you know me. I'm a softie. I want all these kids to succeed, to have great careers, earn lots of money, become stars, love throughout the world. It's not going to happen for all of them. We can certainly look at some, though, now and say, yeah, odds are in your favor. Renus is one of them. Kate, rock star there. I really appreciate how she does the things that she does because, you know, she's a racer. Bottom line, she's a competitor. She wants to go out and kick ass, and I'll tell you, that is the attribute that defines most of those who excel in sport, and whether it's racing or anything else. So, yes, she's a woman. Yes, there aren't enough women in the sport. Yes, we hope that because of Kate and many others who have either blazed that trail or are currently walking the path that has been blazed, that this is just going to be... Something that I don't want to say we never speak about because you want to celebrate the accomplishments of those doing extraordinary things, but I would not mind if in my lifetime the concept of writing or talking about the impact of women in motor racing becomes a non-issue because there are so many women making impacts in motorsports, and who knows? I mean, there aren't that many, I don't want to say barriers, but there aren't that many hurdles left uh people of color being on pit lane uh in the race cars on the timing stands uh changing wheels you name it you know there there there's still some things uh some barriers you could say some hurdles to cross whatever it might be still some areas that i'm hoping reflects the world that we live in to a a greater degree but progress doesn't happen overnight pretty darn cool though to see someone like kate who's just doing the thing that she loves doing it at an incredibly high level of skill and certainly appears to be someone who should be and will be a uh, full-fledged race engineer in a matter of years and then of course we have colton yeah that kid's just a ball of fun and going very far very far in this sport already a winner at 18 yeah crazy crazy stuff Alrighty, righty now it's my time to get into your q and a Let's kick off with Kiwi Jong, whose last name I might have just murdered, and I apologize if so. Kiwi says, I always enjoy Autosports F1 coverage, but their analysis of uh, this Coda race 
sounded like it came from a bunch of guys who've never watched an IndyCar race. I wonder why. Anyways, they kept remarking how silly it was to watch no track limits being enforced, which made me wonder, why is European motorsport so obsessed with track limits, especially compared to American motorsport? It's a great question, and I, I, I wanted to open with this one, Kiwi, because I would love some insight as well. I, the, granted, don't want to make any sweeping comments here. It's not as if every European person who likes motor racing is just locked and bound into track limits. But yeah, I would say for whatever reason uh, of the the big wave of anti-Turn 19, how IndyCar chose to set its track limits, uh, being different than Formula One at Coda. A lot of the comments seem to come from folks who follow Formula One primarily, uh, many appearing to be of European originations. So, uh, granted, we also had plenty of American folks saying, hey, that's dumb. Why aren't you sticking to the as-intended track limits? Um, I, I don't know why. And I can throw a guess that maybe we are more entertainment-minded here. Uh, maybe more focused on wanting to put on a good show than proving to the world that look at this deep and intense rule book and let us then demonstrate how we are good little boys and girls and can stick to everything and show mommy and daddy that we never do anything that is different than what the written rule of expectation happens to be. I don't know. Maybe it's something in that general frame. Um, I'll get to this when I start reading in some of the uh, thoughts and opinions on turn 19 at the end of the Q&A here. But yeah, I, I will mention that I was really surprised at the amount of backlash over turn 19 and its usage. There was something that seemed to be lost by some, not many, but by some. Uh, there are a number of comments about you know, I hate seeing drivers failing to respect track limits. And there was a lot of comments that fell along themes of there was something just wrong and not duty-bound to honoring the track and therefore what happened at Coda with IndyCar defiled the good nature of how the corner should have been used, etc., etc. And the thing that at least for me, seemed to be a surprise was Formula One wasn't there. Uh, as I, I've written uh, in the racer piece, uh, kind of post-race thoughts and ramblings, Formula One wasn't there. This wasn't a Formula One race. I don't care if the track was built for Formula One. This race is used by all manner of championships. Two-wheeled, four-wheeled, vintage, uh, MotoGP, uh, IMSA used to go there, the World Endurance Championship used to go there, the Blancpain World Challenge GT Americas Series goes there. They opened their professional calendar uh, this year at COTA. Uh, you name it. Club racing, pro racing, all kinds of championships go to COTA. My guess is the thing most folks have watched over the years since it opened is Formula One. And there's been a specific way Formula One has done things. And so IndyCar choosing to do something different, totally get that part. Unexpected. Hey, wait a minute. That's not normal. Formula One wasn't there, though. This wasn't their rules. There's no single set of rules as to how Circuit of the Americas can or should be used 
as dictated by Formula One. It is a case of if a professional series is racing there, they choose to use the circuit as it fits their needs. IndyCar said, we're not going to adhere to traditional track limits in turn 19. We're calling track limits everything up to the gravel uh, patch there. And so that is your new track limit. Do not exceed that. And if you were to exceed that, you would probably be crashing. So whether it was liked or disliked, that's an opinion. Again, opinion's great. For those who felt that there was something wrong, not being adhered to, not being respected, not uh, that I can't get down with. IndyCar said, this is our rule. This is how we are applying it. And that's exactly what they did. Formula One, no bearing at all. Wasn't there, doesn't matter. Even when we had IMSA and the WEC sharing weekends at COTA, which I was there for, uh, there were different policies between both championships. Uh, Eduardo Freitas, the WEC race director, I mean, <laughs> track limits. Uh, I believe that phrase is something he should absolutely copyright because I always hear his voice when uh, track limits is mentioned and very strict. IMSA was a little bit less so. They tweaked their policy as well. Um, you think about when we go to Long Beach and we have five, six different series there. Uh, IndyCar might say you cannot cross this line uh, entering the braking zone, the, the pit exit line. If you cross it, treat it like a wall. And if you cross it, we're going to penalize you as if you've hit the wall and there's going to be a negative consequence. Not every series that races at Long Beach on that weekend applies the same criteria. It doesn't make it wrong. It means that the track is the same, but not the application of track limits is the same. So for some reason to me, for me, which again, I don't fully grasp, this plot was lost by some, and therefore maybe I don't get some of it. The opinion part, totally. Hey, whatever you think is whatever you think. As for IndyCar doing something wrong, or not respecting, no, not the case. Track limits were respected, period, because they set track limits differently and did not assign any penalties for those track limits being run afoul of, so everything worked as they intended. Let's go to Ed Joris, who says, One more thing, whoever at IndyCar made the decision on track limits at Coda needs to get some kind of commendation. That was incredibly cool. That was the other thing that I've heard, too. Is some folks said, whoa, yeah, might have looked a little strange, kind of bypassing the curbing, but it seemed to add to the spectacle. So uh, let's go to Phil Pons, who says, will we ever know what happened to Will Powers' car? Well, I assume we're talking about Circuit of the Americas' Phil. He did say afterwards, uh, initially we believed it was a broken drive shaft. He did say that what happened was first gear exploded. And so without first gear to pull away uh, from the pits with, well, he didn't go any further than that. So it turns out it was an exploded first gear ratio. We have Ed Joris back again saying, mostly for me here, what changes would I make, if any, to IndyCar's road and street qualifying and uh, race direction on uh, practice crashes? It says, during Sunday's race, Will Power complained about closing the pits on full course yellows and Sebastian Bourdais complained about red flags and qualifying. As for me personally, hashtag me personally, uh, I would love the practice of closing the pits on yellows alone. 
first everyone knows the dang rule, and the leaders knew what they were risking by staying out after 16 other cars had pitted uh, for their final stop. Second, if we keep the pits open, there would be fewer, quote, dice rolls on strategy combined. That would make races less entertaining. IndyCar needs more entertaining. Uh, the quality, uh, the qual- I'm sorry, the qualifying process needs some work. Maybe we should guarantee eight or nine minutes of green, especially for round one of qualifying. Your thoughts? Yeah, big topic, Ed, about the, you know, the pits being closed after the Hinchcliffe and Rosenquist crash. And Felix being on entry to pit lane, I think, definitely made it easy to say we're closing it right now instead of leaving it open for a little bit. Anyone who's close to pit lane might be able to sneak in before we close that off. IMSA does that uh, whenever possible. Um, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know if there's a perfect situation that we could make, a scenario that we could come up with where we'd say, okay, no matter what happens... Nobody on track will be disadvantaged by it. We're going to close the pits. We're going to leave the pits open. Um, we're probably going to, we're going to be going yellow at some point, right? We have a crash on track that we need to clean up. Get all of that. So something is going to happen that involves a pace car bunching up the field, so on and so forth. Again, if we're leaving it open, could there be a scenario where there's a point in time you say the person that's just driven past the pits, going into turn one, there's a crash, and there's a whole pack of cars that are near the pits, they pit, great, they come out having completed their pit stop, and right after that, they decide to put out the pace car to grab those cars, slow the race, that person who was just in turn one at a long 20-turn track like Coda has a heck of a long way to go uh, to get back to the pits. Um, again, who knows where they're going to be in trying to extract Felix's car. Is it going to truly block all of pit lane? I mean, I'm just throwing out some random things here where you go, okay, no, we're going to leave everything open. Does that necessarily solve everything? Well, not necessarily. Uh, IMSA does a similar thing as well. Will had mentioned that, you know, IndyCar is the only one that does this. Not true. Uh, Granted, he was in the moment and mad, so I'm not expecting Will to have a full accounting of what every series does uh, when faced with something like this. I think, though, Ed, you come back to a very basic premise, though, that was discussed throughout qualifying and, again, during the race. We know, by and large, on a road and street course, there's probably going to be one red flag during qualifying. Someone's going to spin, crash, or otherwise... It's usually going to happen at a very inopportune time. Took place at St. Pete. Took place again here. Everybody knows it's a risk to wait until the last two or three minutes to go out and do that super extra fastest I can be run on reds. The concept of getting in a proverbial banker lap. We all know this, and yet it seems like it's completely forgotten the moment qualifying is over and we go into the next round same scenario strikes. Oh boy, we got we were just screwed by the red flag. Okay, I mean if if you insist, but man, haven't we seen this movie enough times to know that do you really want to gamble? And that comes back to this one as well. Uh, Colton was pitted along with some others maybe a little bit early, right when that final window opened, going into the last stint of the race. Was there something major to be gained by going as long as possible 
Uh, I, I don't know. I can't really think of what that gain might be. Obviously, in theory, uh, you could go a little bit further on fuel. You wouldn't necessarily need a full, full tank leaving, if that was the case. If you're just trying to stretch, therefore needing a little bit less fuel, maybe you could run a little bit lighter to the green flag. I'm sorry, to the checkered flag, or just maximum no thoughts or no worries and concerns. Maybe there's something in there. I don't know. But for the most part... The fact that the race was so odd, and that I expected multiple yellows, most folks that I spoke with expected multiple yellows, the fact that there weren't any, should have raised some alarms, like, huh, boy, it would be bizarre to go all the way, uh, we, we probably might expect this to happen, it, wouldn't it suck to give up the race here with uh, 14, 15, 16 laps to go, in Will's case, having led the whole darn thing, Rossi having been there second or third the whole time, Colton having been second or third the whole time, the fact that the the Harding-Steinbrenner team decided we're going to go early the minute that window opens up, might have to stretch a little bit on fuel at the end if that's the case, might have to not overtax our tires as much, you know, if we were to wait a few more laps, have a few laps uh, fresher tires towards the end, but it's one of those things where even... The NBC broadcast he mentioned. We're getting into that danger zone. Some of you have commented about that. I don't know why. It's like the qualifying thing. Boy, you know the risk. The risk is not new. And yet, this seems to trip folks up more often than not. I guess I would just come away with this, Ed. Maybe someone will have to explain to me the massive penalty of not getting in to get that final pit stop done as soon as the window opened. Um, again, with the lack of yellows, I would have been very concerned that there was going to be one coming here at some point. Uh, and so, therefore, do I want to run that risk? It occurred to me, I think, halfway through the race uh, and tweeted out, like, boy, if this isn't going as expected, I really thought we would have been under caution by now. So, if uh, my simple mind was having such considerations, uh, I know that some others were on pit lane, as proven by their choice to stop as soon as they could once that window opened to get to the checkered flag. So I don't honestly know why, Ed, uh, but memory loss seems to be something that happens on almost a race-by-race basis. Uh, Mike Stoops, he said, Hey, I read your article about Honda believing their engine reliability problems are a, quote, manufacturing issue. If that's the case, can they fix it before the Indy 500? Or is the manufacturing lead time too long? I am fully confident, Mike, that this will be completely resolved with all of the fresh engines that are dispatched for the Indy 500. Knowing that the lead time is not so crazy that they could not rectify the issue, uh, they had a pretty strong feeling as to what it was, something supplied by a vendor. Uh, I did have someone say, you know, respond with kind of a, no bleep through it, really. It's it's a manufacturing issue. Great re- great revelation there. Well, uh, you either you tend to have one of two things. It's either a manufacturing problem or an assembly problem. So it is actually beneficial to know that this wasn't a, a quote, hands issue. Something with uh, someone doing something wrong on the assembly phase, engine after engine. This is indeed something produced by a vendor that they're having some issues with. So identifying that and rectifying it uh, in with enough lead time, Mike, to get those parts and pieces out to HPD to install 
in the next batch of engines, which should be pressed into service again uh, as we start getting into the, uh, you know, towards the race here, uh, month of May, that would be the expected lead time. So with the engine usage and mileage structure they try and uh, adhere to, except for those who've already blown motors and are on their second engine, they're going to be looking to everyone really to get through uh, the next couple of rounds, get into the Indy GP, practice a little bit using the uh, the first engine of the year. But yes, definitely you can look forward to Honda as soon as those parts are available uh, for them to start fitting those uh, for use uh, once we get into the month of May. Or if someone else has another issue, uh, they would in theory have improved parts or rectified parts to uh, put in the motors that would replace the ones that have issues. There was someone, I think someone mentioned, it was on the broadcast, uh, one of the commentators mentioned right off the bat uh, on Sunday that there's some sort of big worry and concern going on at Honda, and oh boy, and I'll just mention this, that yes, Honda has blown up three motors this year that I know of, two in the St. Pete race, one in Colton's car in practice. I also watched, heard, saw uh, Will Power uh, have a Chevy, break in testing at Monterey and I you know if there are any others I've missed then uh, I apologize but yes uh, to my knowledge you know we've had a couple more on one brand than the other uh, come up short and have issues but if we look back to Sunday no issues and Honda won the race uh, we have another question kind of on the uh, the danger zone angle this comes in from Stephen Kilsdonk uh, mentioning from St. Pete qualifying to round one groups at Coda to the caution during the race I wonder more and more, why do teams not put down a banker lap in qualifying early on? Why do teams wait so long to make their final stops? It says, I understand the computers say the optimum, optimum is to spend less time on old tires, but it seems like the majority of NASCAR and IMSA teams have learned to make their final stop as early as they can on a road course. Uh, and he also says, a shout out to the NBCSN crew for all the Kenny Loggins danger zone references to the increasingly thin ice Will Power and Alexander Rossi were on by waiting to pit. Again, I don't know, and, and I left this in knowing it was a little bit of the same question, but it does just come back to reinforce the point that, you know, fans are asking the same thing. You know, folks who do not make a living doing this are still grasping, like, what is it we're not getting? And uh, I don't get it fully, but yeah, like I said, I'm hoping some of my engineer and strategist friends will tell me, Pruitt, idiot, this is the big reason you're missing why we would try and run a little bit longer and put ourselves at great risk and potentially forfeit the race, as some did, uh, instead of trying to get in and get that last stop over uh, before things could potentially go haywire. Uh, let's see... Scott Wharton, another interesting one. Do you think IndyCar should change their wave-around rule? He says, I think the rule should be that if you're lapped down and the yellow comes out, you have two choices. One, you can pit with the lead lap cars and try and race your way back onto the lead lap. Or two, roll the dice and not pit and take the wave around and get your lap back and hope that another caution comes out again quickly. Scott says, I don't think it's fair that drivers who are lapped down get to take the wave around and still get to pit under that caution period. I can I can see your point, Scott. Um, I don't know, and maybe this is just it's my limitation. I try not to get too deep into stuff like this in terms of letting it bother me. Uh, I don't see anything drastically wrong. 
I realize that if you're lap down, you get the wave around, you still get to pit with everybody else. Okay, I know it seems like you've just, well, it should say seem, you've just been given uh, the full distance of a lap back just for the sake of it because it's a rule, but I guess that's maybe what comes to mind here. It's a rule, meaning they came up with it. They decided that's how they want to do it. I don't know if it falls into a right or wrong standpoint, but since they decided they want to do it, okay, I'll, I'll go along with it. If you're maybe the driving point here, Scott, of feels like it's something that really wasn't earned, yeah, I get that, but I don't know. Maybe back to the uh, the earlier part of entertainment and trying to give folks chances. That I'm down with. That, uh, that makes this, at least for me, a non-issue. What I'm not a big fan of is when you have a driver who's a lap down like Zach Veach last weekend, who he did not cover himself in glory when it came to decision-making. Uh, racing up the front straight, again, a while a lap down, trying to get by Scott Dixon, who, if I remember, was in, like, ninth, I think, something like that. Um, if it happened to be a Will Power, a Rossi, or even a... Uh, Colton Hurt at the end of the race. If there was a way for him, and this was the leader he was trying to get by and would get that lap back and could then maybe unlock a a much better finishing position. I got it. When you're going wheel-to-wheel with the guy in whatever Dixie was, ninth place, and rubbing wheels and wings and whatever, and I mean, that I don't get. That, I think, in terms of decision-making, yeah, I mean, it's... Zach's in his second season. I mean, he has one year and two races, uh, three races under his belt, whatever the exact number is. But, uh, yeah, decision-making, I would say, in that instance, even though you're fast and you got to run on the guy in ninth, when you are that far back, uh, to me, I would just say that maybe you have to realize the, the greater context of things. And while the true competitor in all of us would say, I'd do it too, I'd go for it. Okay, fair enough. What a? What are you going to get? You're still going to be a lap down, way the heck at the back, the uh, at the back of the pack. Maybe the bigger thing, though, to consider, which considering Zach is still relatively young and still learning, I don't know if you want to be the guy who sets a precedent with the Scott Dixon or name some of the other veterans who might either have been in that situation uh, or just watched the footage afterwards and said, "Oh, okay." if I can really trust you. Um, I don't know if I'm going to look at you the same way if I have a situation where I can either make a pass that's going to really screw you up or treat you as a hostile, not just a competitor, but someone whose judgment-making abilities, who I didn't have a reason to question before, maybe I do. So maybe I treat you in a harsher manner if just for my own preservation. I don't know if that's a door you want to open up as a young driver, because all of a sudden you could have the Dixons of the world saying, all right, dude, uh, if that's how you're going to treat me when you're a lap down and you've got nothing to gain, but you're putting my race at risk because I'm on the lead lap and trying to get points for a, a championship that you aren't going to get being where you are, okay, definitely going to keep that in mind next time we are sharing the same piece of track. So that's at least what stood out for me there. Let's go to Peter Santi, who says, Marshall, is it possible the strategist for Will Power is losing a little bit of his touch? For St. Pete, Will was called in early for the first stop because the team thought uh, the course may go yellow. For Coda, Will was kept out too long, and the team seemed to ignore the consequences if a yellow flag came out. 
Um, there are a couple of other things here. Wondering if uh, you know the team's race strategy software or predictive stuff might have led to the uh, decision that were made. Again, I, I know this is the, the third reference to this staying out. Why? What? Yeah, I wouldn't put uh, our beloved strategist on willpower's stand. I wouldn't say losing touch by any means, but I would say that, yeah, I mean, there's just some, you know, systematic questions you might look at. Say, hey, how did we end up in this place two races in a row where maybe we were off a little bit? Um, If we're talking that's happening again and again, you know, building a trend off of two races out of 17, that's certainly, I would say, premature. You don't disregard but you maybe don't draw any major conclusions with only two data points. If you're looking at a third and a fourth and a fifth here, though, yeah, I think that's when you start to say, huh, maybe uh, maybe we need to think if there's someone else that should be doing this, but again, when uh, a, a certain silver-haired person whose name is on the team and the company, uh, if they want to be on the timing stand and knowing how many wins they've had, that would certainly be something to, uh, yeah, that might not be the easiest one to consider here. Let's go to Kyle Brown. Um, falling in here, uh, got a quick note about track limits. He says, uh, I'll list a quote I've heard attributed to several drivers. If you don't want me to race on it, don't pave it. Track limits should be a self-enforcing penalty. Uh, the question from Kyle, though, was, how different would lap times be if a car went out on reds at the start of a qualifying session instead of the end? Red flags that prevented fast cars from setting fast times at uh, both races so far this year. Waiting until late in the session to use reds seems like a big risk to take. It really just comes down to an inventory thing, Kyle. Uh, Teams are wanting to, in many cases, save uh, their reds uh, brand new in that instance for when they can truly be effective in the race. And so throwing all those reds at the car in qualifying again it's they are treated by and large as a highly precious commodity and if we think about coda for example we know that most drivers said yeah we got about a lap and a half maybe two laps of peak performance and then there's a significant drop off the reason that there could be you know the reason that you might want to wait as late as possible Obviously, you would go out on a set of blacks and try and set a very competitive time uh, as your banker. The reason that some would try and push that boundary a little bit is I can go out immediately on reds. And uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about the uh, very first half of the first round of qualifying when the track might still not be gripped up as much as you want. But uh, for pretty much any other instance, the reason you wouldn't necessarily do that automatically is knowing that you have, you know, a lap and a half, two laps at Coda, uh, and just we'll just say a similar number elsewhere, maybe three at most, but you've got this finite resource to burn. And if you go out and burn that right off the bat, you're left in a situation of hoping. Teams hate to hope. Teams hate to have non-definitive answers. And so if you do go out and you set your, quote, fast time, and whether it's more rubber going down, condition changes, who, who you name it. Um, maybe you miss the balance a little bit. Maybe your tire pressures are off just a little bit. Um, you'd like to think that you would still have the ability to go back out and try and reset a better time 
if your competitors have indeed gone faster or uh, have maybe bumped you out of the Fast 6 or the Fast 12, it's honestly, it's just about asset management. And so the reason why some teams, if not many teams, would try and wait as long as possible, if not the last couple of minutes, it's, well, we're going to be able to go for glory here and try and do something truly special and take the conditions, take whatever into a perfect one-shot kind of program. And, you know, again, trying to do that twice on the same set uh, usually doesn't pay off in any way. So I know, again, it's, it's a little bit of mental trickery, whether you make that shot to begin or make that shot to end the session or in the middle of the session. There's just, I think, some feeling of we went too early, track wasn't fully gripped up, didn't have enough rubber down from the Firestone alternate tires, and we just mistimed things a little bit. If we'd waited a little bit longer, we would have been in a perfect position. So not saying that is always accurate, but in terms of a mindset, that's the one that uh, I think you'll find comes to mind more often than not. Kevin Frederico says, Will the series do more $100,000 checks for a combined pole and win at other rounds? It's nice to see a real payout for money than the current poultry prizes. I think you mean poultry, but maybe they do hand out chicken, Kev. That would be pretty awesome. Um, I, I did not dig into where that money came from, whether that was a COTA thing or an IndyCar thing. I'm guessing it was an IndyCar thing. Uh, meant to speak with Jay Fry here, hopefully this week, and I will ask, try and find out, is that a incentive that IndyCar might be able to continue at other rounds? That would be pretty awesome. Luke Setters, he says, hey, quick question, maybe I missed it during the broadcast, but what happened to Santino Ferrucci? He was up front at the beginning of the race and then dropped back significantly. I believe it was before the yellow as well. Thanks. Well, Luke, I uh, had to read up on that a little bit. You might have seen that uh, dear Santino went for at least one ride over the big sausage curbs and went flying a little bit. And at least from what I was able to pick up in their post-race press release, they said that he managed to break the rear dampers uh, in returning to Earth. So, yeah, uh, when you break suspension, that tends to be... Uh, a uh, pretty quick end to the day, unless you have something easy to replace it with, a uh, suspension A-arm, uh, that's something that can go on fairly easily. Dampers, unless you have uh, a set that is truly, you know, exact height, exact everything, ready to go back on the car, you would probably end up spending time back on the setup pad, having to level things, get the corner weights straight, and then send them back out. So, uh, it sounds like this was just a little bit too much to try and do in a short amount of time. So uh, had the lad not uh, gone for a brief flight, probably would have had an awesome finish uh, to look back upon. All right, we are at Michael Zenger, who says, After the first laps of the race, I thought that not enforcing track limits is a better way. Otherwise, the corner should be redesigned. But I also think the Rosenquist accident happened because of drivers driving where they want. Always two sides here. He says, I'll try and re-ask my question from last week. During winter testing, Carlin uh, had their Indy Lights cars going. Do you see any chance of Carlin adding uh, Indy Lights cars to the grid this season? Uh, and he said, I imagine if someone would give you money to run their cars uh, and decided to have the pilots, which young drivers currently unemployed would you choose? Well, I haven't heard anything, Michael, from Carlin about their Indy Lights cars actually hitting the grid this year. 
I don't think it is a dead topic altogether. I do just think for the most part, the young drivers with budget, ready and able to compete in Indy Lights have already been identified and they are on the grid. So it would be a little bit odd or unexpected for a young driver to have nothing uh, going on right now, either in Europe or here, to then come up with that money and start participating, I guess, with the season already in motion. So doubtful there. Um, as for unemployed drivers to choose, I mean, I love that question. Unfortunately, it's not really the way that things work. It's indeed those, unem quote, unemployed drivers bringing money to, a quote, be employed in Indy Lights. So unless Carlin just falls into some money to hire drivers, which, again, really doesn't happen that much in Indy Lights, I, I don't think we're going to see that scenario play out. Let's go to Andrew Miller, who asks... Why was the yellow for Rosenquist crash so long? No reason that I could see, given from my seat in turn one. That was a great question, and also got an answer here, provided by IndyCar race director Kyle Novak, that he sent in. Same one came in from Jake Murray and Robin Miller's mailbag, so I'll just read it to you, and hopefully it'll answer everything. The full-course yellow was double in length because of two factors. First, the Rosenquist car was blocking the pit entry, and the active AMR safety personnel were on the scene, and debris was scattered in the area. The majority of the time, we can open the pits in the first time by. Under the pace car, in this case, we couldn't open it until the second time by. He also says the pits had to remain closed because we can't have cars pitting through an incident scene. Combine the previous with the fact the leaders were on the backside of a longer circuit when the incident occurred, which essentially added another half-slow lap of yellow to the process, Second, after the one-to-go signal was given to the field, a fender liner flew out of the pace car directly onto the restart line in turn 20, which added an extra lap to the full-course yellow. So essentially, what, we, what would have been a three-lap full-course yellow was doubled to six because of the location of the incident preventing the pits from being opened and the extra lap under yellow to clean up the debris in turn 20. And then we also had that fender liner two, which made things a little bit of extra fun, Andrew. Uh, Kevin uh, Scheindewolf, Schindewolf. Uh, again, I apologize. The uh, last name assassin is added again, Kev. I apologize. Don't hesitate to tell me how to pronounce your last name correctly so I can at least get it right once before forgetting it. Also mentioned the question of the reliability issue with Honda. Uh, this is the thing where, you know, we just look at trends. And since the entire field got through things in the race without issue... I, it feels a little more random than probably anybody at Honda would want, but knowing that they believe they have the root cause identified, you hope for everyone that every car gets through every race without engine dramas, unless, of course, you hate a particular team or driver, and then you're probably actively rooting and putting hexes on them, but uh, rooting against their success. But, yeah, I, I don't know. That's one thing if you have a bunch of cars all blow up at the same time you go oh there's the thing when it's two at st pete one at coda yeah i've heard that of the three there were two maybe that were looking like they were the same thing one that maybe was a little bit weird but anyways you cross your fingers for sure until you can do a complete uh new fresh build on motors and in theory wipe out the issue that's being had but you know, when we get to Barber, I'm sure there's still going to be a little bit of uh, 
unease, hoping that there are no issues. And if there are, then, you know, we'll see. And back to the thing I mentioned earlier, you know, Chevy has lost one as well, not in a race, in a test. They have been and traditionally have been pretty darn good uh, from a reliability standpoint, but they are not immune. So, yeah, just looking for either the all clear coming out of Barber, hopefully, and then into Long Beach as well, or is this going to come up again as a big concern until all these motors can be swapped out? Uh, what was it, 2013 maybe? I might be forgetting at Long Beach, but uh, it was Long Beach, I believe 2013 or so, where Honda decided to change everything. I think it was Honda. No, it might have been Chevy. I don't know, man. I apologize. Uh, trying to keep all this stuff in line gets a little bit tough. But uh, they did indeed call for a complete change of all motors. And uh, there were penalties back then for that. But anyways, uh, if we were to see more of this, it might not be uh, a bad thing to consider doing a global change to a, a new spec without what they believe is the problematic issue internally. But We'd probably have to have a few more explosions before you'd get to that point. All right, we're getting down to, well, we got another, yeah, little handful here, and then we're going to get to your turn 19 thoughts. Let's go to Jim Johnstone. It says, Colton's drive was just awesome. Even ignoring the yellow flag, uh, he was driving a heck of a race. Cannot argue there, Jim. He says, MP, I don't want to start a rant here, but I'm getting annoyed with all the bitching on the IndyCar Eraser Facebook pages about how IndyCar hates the Canadian fans and is screwing us. I'm not exactly thrilled about paying an extra 20 bucks a month for TV to get all the races, but frankly, I spend more than that every month on coffee at Tim Hortons. Uh, Tim Hortons reference. <laughs> uh, I haven't had anything sweet or dessert or breakfast stuff like that in months, so... Uh, all right, I'm going to stop salivating here. Uh, but all those people that are complaining about it and writing into Miller's mailbag need to direct that anger towards Sportsnet, that being the uh, Rogers Cable outlet here. Uh, perhaps if Sportsnet starts to hear from fans that are refusing to purchase the additional channel, they may see some additional value in airing IndyCar on their main channels. Yell at IndyCar all you want. They can't change Sportsnet's programming. On another note... What is the approximate lead time for Honda, Chevy, or Manufacturer X to get the new 2.4 liter engine concept uh, from a concept to the track? And what sort of lead time would Delara need to develop a new chassis for 2022? Well, knowing that this new engine is meant to be here on track competing in roughly March of 2021, I would say if those motors are not on the dyno for the first time, by probably May or June of 2020, a little over a year from now, that would be a surprise. And then from a track testing standpoint, something midsummer, uh, I don't know, late, late, somewhere in July, late July, early August, even September, I imagine, could be possible. But knowing how hard Honda and Chevy push, they would certainly be wanting to be on track by July-ish. Uh, August at the absolute latest. So I think that would be a reasonable timeline to expect. As for how long Delara needs to develop a chassis for 2022, really it comes down to IndyCar solidifying the, I guess, the silhouette of that 2.4 liter engine. Uh, IndyCar would uh, specify 
uh, exactly where engine mounts would need to go both from the block and also both cam covers exactly how this motor would connect to the chassis once Delara has that and in theory has the maximum engine length and width all dimensions I expect IndyCar to mandate meaning this is the maximum you can go this is the minimum this is effectively if you had the back of a tub and a pen using that uh, blueprint you could trace out uh, effectively what that engine would look like and where it would bolt in once you have those items in place and you know the width of the motor therefore you can dictate bell housing length and transmission you start getting suspension uh, angle uh, that being whether it's raked forward or back um, looking at wheelbase overall you know once you essentially have the motor component figured out it's pretty darn easy to draw in everything else I also like the fact uh, that you have mentioned here Jim you've just said how long would it take Delara and again I think that's just the assumption it would be a bizarre, bizarre turn if Delara was not chosen as the uh, continuing sole supplier for IndyCar. So, would love to see, of course, you know, other brands submit a tender, and who knows if there are other brands that could do better than Delara. But uh, yeah, it would be a surprise if the Italian firm was not chosen to do this. So, I don't think they need a huge lead time at all. And you know, obviously, if a car is going to be on track and testing. Uh, with those new engines, well, that is going to need to fit into the existing chassis. So that's what IndyCar has said they're planning on doing, just in terms of size, is this 2021 motor would need to fit in the current DW12. And so therefore, in theory, Delar already has that information. We know they've said that, uh, still waiting, you know, until you have the exact every single thing has been signed off every single thing is a reality go start building your motors until we have that actually done you know that's why i love leave things open a little bit um could that change at all who knows i don't expect it to but it could so uh, until that is indeed confirmed as a 100 percent happening kind of thing that's the only thing that would be holding delara back but in theory they could really get a lot of that work done now and start planning for the future based on the dimensions of that 2.4 liter motor slotting in the same way the current one does. Uh, let's see, Daniel Kincaid says, has there been any news of Carlos Munoz getting a ride at Indy? I've heard a little bit about him sniffing around Daniel. Uh, some thoughts about could he be in an Andretti car? Uh, know that he was vying for that along with Connor Daly and a few others. Stefan Wilson as well. We did see that that did go to our man, Mr. Daly. I have also heard Carlos's name mentioned with SPM, uh, the Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports team. Um, we'll see if any changes have happened there. Still believe our boy Oriol Servia is on pole position to be in their third entry. So after that, really depends what budget that Carlos would be able to bring. And could that be something out of Junkos Racing, possibly? Uh, there aren't a lot of seats left, for sure. Uh, Ricardo's team might be really one of the final ones that stands out as a place with experience, with cars, needing some names to plug in. Uh, let's go to Luke Setters. He says, interesting scenario for the Meyer Shank team. Let's say Jack Harvey keeps up his current momentum and scores a few more top 10s and does well at Indy. 
Right now, he's tied for 10th in the championship. Let's say he's still in the top 10 after Indy. Does the uh, Meyer-Shank team then add more races to the schedule, or do you think they would stick to their 10 scheduled races no matter what? He then says, hashtag me personally. I would think they would try and piece together whatever they can to keep the momentum going. Keep it up, Jack! Well, there's a couple... Uh, a, yes, I love love this concept, Luke. I would love for Jack to continue to keep building. Uh, I didn't see what I'd hoped to see out of them last year in a few too many races, knowing they only did, what, I think six, but there were just a few too many where it seemed like, eh, you really... I'm not seeing the same spark that was there in Indy Lights. Definitely seen more of that this year. I would say you got a couple bigger things to consider, though, Luke, which might temper this possibility. So if we look back to last year with the Meyershank Racing IMSA team, their uh, Acura NSX GT3 program, it was only meant to be a part-time effort for their second car. That's the one that Catherine Legg was driving. Cat did so darn well to open the season that, you know, she was in such a strong position, they kept finding money to be able to keep that car going and ended up vying for the championship. Didn't win it, but this exact scenario you're referring to of, hey, strong, only planned on doing a partial, how do we keep the party going? Issue here, though, do I think they could find the money? Possibly. A little more expensive, a lot more expensive to do this in IndyCar. Budget to get to an IndyCar race, certainly bigger than what it takes to do a GT3-based race in IMSA. The issue, though, is the crossover and the fact that there is no dedicated Meyer Shank Racing IndyCar crew. It is indeed a uh, dual-purpose IMSA and in, uh, IMSA and IndyCar crew there, based out of Ohio. So, knowing that there are either some uh, calendar conflicts or just general prep conflicts of needing to get the, I would say, primary IMSA program ready to the track and competing. You know, from their crew chief, Adam, to this person here, to an engineer, and so on and so forth. Yeah, we do have, I guess you could say, a priority of folks needing to tend to their IMSA program that might make this not so possible. The goal is, though, Luke, as Mike has said all along, Mike Shank, is to become a full-time IndyCar effort. And when that does happen, and I believe it will, that will mean hiring more people so they do have dedicated IndyCar and IMSA crew. I'd still expect a little bit of bouncing back and forth and some crossover, but until they have IndyCar full-timers, yeah, this might be a little bit too much to pull off. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra. It says, MP, who is the most impressive rookie at Coda? I vote Pato Award. Lesser equipment, and he made some great on-track passes. Heard a pass Rossi in cold tires and won with the right strategy. Yes, I am reaching. I wouldn't disagree. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm kind of in the 50-50 range, and I hate being 50-50. Uh, uh, but if we look at what Pato did expectation-wise, yeah. A kid who has not been in an IndyCar for, what, six months? Since Sonoma last year in September. Did not test a code. Has done no testing. Uh, never been on track at Coda in anything that I know of, and if so, it certainly wasn't a uh, quick open wheel car. So, completely cold, with a team that is on the rise, but is certainly not a front runner yet, and having to learn how to work with a new engineer, someone new to him and Matt Grizzly, very super talented, but again, 
having a <laughs> Friday morning. Uh, hi, Matt, <laughs> Pato. Let's figure out how to work together. Um, it's a lot of caveats in place. And so to see how far Pato came, uh, just from free practice one through qualifying, qualified eighth again. I mean, he qualified fifth at Sonoma, which blew people away, but that's in a car that's effectively an Andretti car, Andretti technology. Um, for him to qualify eighth for Carlin, to make his teammate Max Chilton a veteran of Coda in F1, but also, you know, how many years? Three, four, five years? I don't know how many years Max has been in IndyCar, but uh, out-qualified Max by five positions in his first appearance in the team Fresh and new to everything, as I mentioned. Very cold, having to get up to speed. To out-qualify Max by five spots, and then just leave him in the dust in the race. And I know Max had some issues and challenges, but... Um, wow. Absolute wow, in terms of what Pato did with all of those things where you go, in theory, the, the odds are stacked against you. And, you know, as he said... They missed out on strategy a little bit to the point to where he had to go into extreme fuel saving to get to the finish line. As a result, he got passed by a few people, ended up finishing eighth. I spoke with him an hour or two after the race, and he was livid. Not at the team, not none, just at lost potential. And <laughs> Ryan, that's you know that's one of the the hallmarks of people with immense talent is yeah he's not the one to go home and go hey eighth on my debut with Carlin yeah that's great it was damn it we should have been fifth should have been sixth should have been something uh, they also had a little bit of an issue during the pit stops where he told me uh, he was sitting idle for one two sometimes three seconds after they were done servicing the car fuel probe had been pulled. Uh, crew chief waved him out and would be stuck sitting there and he said it was an issue with he would select first gear using the paddle shift and it would just take a few seconds for that message to be received and first gear to engage so giving up hundreds and hundreds of feet of track position then having to go try and claw it back so yeah altogether I would just say the obstacles faced uh, were certainly greater by Pato and for them, for him to then look like he could have had a fifth or sixth place finish, that was phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, then you come to the other 50% here and you go, all right, Colton, um, we know that Nathan O'Rourke is a badass, super experienced race engineer. We know that Andretti Technologies has filled that car with the same uh, quality parts and pieces that make Rossi and Hunter Ray and all the uh, full Andretti drivers go as quickly as they do. So we know the vehicle itself uh, was superior in terms of development compared to what Pato had. But then we also factor in the, uh, you know, there, there are some pretty serious concerns just about the funding to get to the races kind of stuff. And you think about all the things that Colton is having to manage, right? He knows that if he throws the car off during practice, breaks this, that, and the other, you know, uh, that could set the team back from competing in the next session or having to find the money to do that. Um, you think of what he's having to manage, where he can't go out and necessarily be perfectly free and take great risks. Pato, on the other hand, he just went balls out the entire time. We saw it. It was flashy and awesome. Colton, I mean, that kid was inch perfect 
a rocket, just a pure machine, single car team, uh, working, you know, with the smallest of budgets and the ability, the lack of ability to go out and really make, you know, a high risk moves that others might, you know, both of them had challenges getting to where they were. Uh, the, the highlight reel, that was all Pato. And I think that's just going to become part of his thing. Uh, that kid becoming part of every uh, highlight package that IndyCar produces. Colton, uh, not the same in that capacity. Uh, someone who I think is more of the cold-blooded killer type, where you go, wait a minute, every lap this kid is right there, maybe gaining a tenth, maybe losing a tenth on Will Freaking Power or Alexander Rossi, but is just lap after lap, just ice cold. And so they do things differently. The results are around about the same. In this case, yeah, Ryan, I would just say that, you know, I can't vote against Pato as being the most impressive rookie. I would just say that knowing that Colton also has some challenges and limitations as well, the fact that he was running in the top three and ended up winning... Um, it'd be hard not to give that to him. Two more questions to go. We're going to jump into Tori Claret, who says, Marshall, has there been a change in IndyCar's exhausts? Or has NBC just stepped up the sound equipment? He says, because the car sounds so much better on TV and louder, especially when you guys do pit reports talking mid-race. Am I crazy? No changes there, actually, Tori. None whatsoever. In terms of anything, you know, truly change the overall volume, pitch, intensity, not that I can think of. Uh, They are surprisingly loud. I mean, now that I'm wearing hearing protection just about at all times, it does surprise me. Uh, Maybe I didn't appreciate it fully before, but even with those two turbochargers on the Hondas and Chevys, which do act as sound deadening devices... They're still loud. I mean, not NASCAR V8, not F1 V8 or V10, V12, whatever. Not the old IRL V8s for sure. But yeah, they're they're not quiet. That I can tell you for sure. So not exactly uh, 100% or 0% sure why they might be sounding louder on TV. But yeah, maybe our pals at NBC are either putting more microphones out there or just dialing them up. Last question for me goes to Joey of the Priuses asks, not a particularly interesting question for you, Marshall, but I am just curious, have any more sports car teams shown any interest in joining IndyCar lately? We've had Dragon Speed, Michael Shank Racing, and Scuderia Corsa join in the last year. Is anyone else looking to follow them in right now? Not that I've heard of, Joey. Uh, Trust me, I'd be the first to report on it if a sports car team owner said, yep, they were seriously looking. I'm sure there are a couple that would like to, uh, those with open-wheel backgrounds like uh, PR1 Matheson, for example, that spent a lot of time in the Atlantic Championship, but I can't really think of any that jump out as trying to climb in right now from the sports car world. The only one that comes to mind is, and this isn't sports cars, it's just a desire, and that's Brian Bellardi from Indy Lights, co-entrant on Crazy James Davison's Indy 500 entry will be that for the second time, I believe now. Maybe third, I apologize. But I know that Brian's wanting to get in. Do mean to catch up with him just to find out what might happen there. If there is a uh, a plan in place behind that desire. If he might be thinking, you know, be crazy to go and buy a car maybe for 2020, knowing that we have a new 
engine formula and a new chassis formula meant to be following right behind it. But anyways, hoping to catch up with Brian, but we'll certainly keep advocating in IMSA and elsewhere for teams to consider IndyCar, something I've done for a long time, and frankly, also in the opposite direction of trying to help any IndyCar teams that might be looking at sports cars to align them with any folks that could be of help to get them there. So, all right, now let's move on to our turn 19. Your thoughts, positive, negative, or otherwise, your thoughts here on IndyCar's use of turn 19 last weekend, and then we will say farewell to this episode. We're going to start off with Steve Hamilton, who says, at Coda, no track limits is fine, but they can't do that on more of the classic tracks, in my opinion. Drivers tend to take turn one at Road America using ex- extra track, but if they don't enforce track limits, that line gets wider and the tire wall gets closer. Tilkadromes are fine, classic tracks no, on the grounds of safety. Simon Raffi says, not enforcing track limits on turn 19 was the most stupid thing I've seen in years. What was the explanation? already covered that here. Simon, hopefully you caught up with uh, some of the earlier discussion with Colton Herta on that. Michael Strack says, I love the no limits. Takes the referees out of the game. Peter Santi says, for Marshall, regarding the track limits, the most memorable pass in history of IndyCar was Alex Zanardi on Brian Herta at Laguna Seca on a road course uh, that wouldn't have been allowed if track limits were being enforced. Look at how last year's three-car pass at Long Beach by Mr. French Fry, that being Sebastian Bourdais, was disallowed just for getting two wheels over a line. I think track limit should be enforced when there is a safety issue and to prevent a driver from truly cutting a corner and making the track shorter in length. But if a driver wants to make the lap longer than it needs to be, as was, as was the case by going wide in turn 19, go for it. What made me stop watching American football was that I felt like I needed to be a lawyer to understand all of the rules. What turned me off to the Formula E race this weekend was the fact that the race ended with something like 10 outstanding investigations for various rules and fractions, and who knew how the final standings would actually turn out. IndyCar should keep racing safe, make sure the rules are applied equally to everyone, and let it be in the hands of the drivers as much as possible. We'll go to Ryan Terpster. Ryan says... I'll weigh in on track limits. I'm okay if they don't enforce them, if the drivers attempt to adhere to them. Scott Dixon got got run wide at the start in turn one, no problem. If you attempt to run turn 19 as designed and fail, you'll bottom out on that curb and it will be slower. Unless you're flat out, don't try and intentionally use the runoff like they did, it won't be faster to exceed track limits. As a fan, it looked very NASCAR. That's not a compliment here. Scott W. Call says, Hey, Marshall, with regards to opinion on track limits at Coda, since this was the IRL's first trip to Coda, hasn't been called the IRL for 14 years, seeing how well the cars and drivers were able to navigate and make passing work within the designated track limits the track offers would have been nice to see. If the racing unfortunately turned out undramatic, well, hopefully they could readdress that the following season but we'll never know, I guess, unless they switch it for next season. If anything, maybe during a practice session they could have observed track limits to see what drivers thought. Or even, maybe the first 15 laps of the race could have been done with track limits enforced, and then if undramatic, told them to cut loose and use what they want. We have a mid-race policy change of where cars can compete on the track. 
That's an interesting one. Time will tell what will happen long term, I suppose. Is there any word if any other tracks will not be observing track limits this season? Little note here, tracks don't determine what is observed. The series, IndyCar series, and any series going to those tracks happen to determine what will or will not be used. So considering how this was IndyCar's first visit to Circuit of the Americas, I would say we have a very special situation applied just to Circuit of the Americas. David Cody says, I really didn't like those guys going so far off track, but I prefer it to the likelihood of jacked-up officiating calls with unreasonable penalties. I also thought Will Buxton's tweet about Rosenquist's crash was, quote, off track, exclamation point. That being my pal Will Buxton, uh, who is a very declarative non-fan of the Turn 19 track limits used by IndyCar, pointing blame at the crash between James Hinchcliffe and Felix Rosenquist as to proof that it was the wrong choice. John Hankin says, I think ignoring the track limits at Coda was fun and different. Not many places on the IndyCar schedule where it can be done. Next year they should dub it, making a mess in Texas. <laughs> William Matson says, on no track limits, just like when IMSA did it, it was great. It makes the racing look awesome. It gives everyone tons of room to pass. It's one less thing that corner workers and race control have to look for. It's fair, since everyone has the same space to run on. In my opinion, if there's pavement there, race on it. Mike Lengel says, I agree with no track limits. The less officiating getting in the way of the race, the better. Greg Fetchick, the uh, last one's for you, and it's actually two questions instead of just a statement, an opinion on turn 19, but uh, I guess I thought this would be fun to drop in at the end. So, Marshall, two questions, sounding like Wolfgang Monser, the, the famous German reporter. If track limits are suddenly so important, why not return to grass and gravel? I think that would solve the problem. The excessive amounts of asphalt in F1 make me a little crazy and not in a good way. Yeah, and that's that's maybe the, the overriding thing here, which I, I probably haven't mentioned enough and maybe others missed. I know that it didn't stand out to me instantly, but pretty much everywhere we go with IndyCar on a, on a road course you're not going to have tons of paved runoff. I know that there are some corners here or there that do have some, but for the most part, we're not talking about Mid-Ohio having oh, just all sorts of paved stuff to help a car slow down if it goes off. It's grass, and then it's a barrier, and the, the intersection between the paved racing surface and that grass that's the track limit. <laughs> you don't have to paint anything. You don't got. You don't have to make a rule. There's nothing required. The grass will will tell you you made a mistake because it will help throw you into the barrier. Uh, this thing of racing at a Formula One track in the USA with a an American series, you know, definitely a bit of a a different thing circuit style wise. And with this huge amount of pavement uh, as runoff areas before you get to the gravel, before you get to the barrier, you know, this is something where in turn 19, as Colton mentioned uh, at the open of the show, this is something that IndyCar said, you know what, uh, just be rather to let it fly, let it be. Uh, also keep in mind that IndyCar race director Kyle Novak comes to us from IMSA, where IMSA at Coda did have a liberal policy on turn 19, uh, at least one of the years we were there. So this wasn't just something that I can see where they just pulled it out of their backsides. 
That's something where Kyle had seen and known and said, okay, I've seen this. Uh, it has worked, and I'm confident it can work again. All drawing back to the point that IndyCar just isn't as large as F1, nor does it have the staff or necessarily all the technology to be able to police that as accurately as they wanted. So uh, I do, but I do, Greg. I do like the... I love the natural track limits imposed at so many of the places that we do go. Hey, it's a cement wall at Long Beach or Detroit. And yeah, the wall will tell you that you have exceeded track limits as you scrape to a halt. Or, hey, the grass or dirt or whatever that just helped pull you off track, it's going to tell you. So uh, I'm I'm pretty good with the natural way of doing this. Your last question, and this one's just a little bit fun. Uh, This says, hey, second question. I've asked Robin Miller this one before, but I thought I should ask you. Why are IndyCar fans so miserable and angry all the time? And I just had a chuckle reading it because you sure could get that impression, Greg. At least as I have seen it, it reminds me of the old, and I believe fake story, but it it kind of fits the narrative, even though it doesn't work. Fits the, the narrative of, uh, one person telling me the uh, why Kevin Kalkoven bought Champ Car story. And it draws back to a tale of a very popular IndyCar forum in the 2000s. And a very robust and committed group of users. And in that forum, there was just a constant high volume in terms of frequency of posts. You could almost say high volume in just the actual loud attention-grabbing standpoint of folks saying car, uh, Champ Car is good, it should be saved, Kevin Kalkoven should do it, it's thriving, it's going to be amazing. Just this huge volume of do it, do it, do it, it'd be great, it's great, save it, don't let it go, amazing. The volume was enough in this story I was told, which I don't fully believe, that... Calcoven, among other reasons as well, not solely because, but Calcoven chose to do exactly that. Invest, spend money, and buy Champ Car. Um, the, the little tale to the story, though, which is what makes it interesting, is this was not a high number of folks saying this. This was a high volume of posts. In reality, much smaller number. Dedicated group. Do it, buy it, do it, great, positivity, success, on and on and on and on and on. And as the tale goes, Calcovin mistook the high volume of posts and boy, wow, yeah, you're right. Look at this. Jeez, it's it's thriving. Look at all the fans. They're just talking man, boy, gotta do it, gotta save it. When in reality, it was a comparative handful of people just posting similar things over and over and over again. And so again, Greg, while I don't believe that is accurate uh, in terms of it actually happening that way, it does just remind me, that reminds me of this situation, of there sure are some miserable and angry IndyCar fans, and they seemingly cannot wake up, wait to wake up every morning and hit the comment section of whatever sites or social media and pick apart any and every little thing they can and tell us how miserable they are how miserable IndyCar is, all the things that are wrong. Um, You know, in the usual, uh, if I read, if I make the mistake, as Sebastian Bourdais told me, don't read the comments. If I make the mistake of reading some of the comments on a story I've written, 
it's a shock if I get to the end without someone saying I'm a fat ass, I'm an idiot, I'm a just, you know, uh, shredding me as well, or Robin, or anyone else. If people aren't just murdered <laughs> in the comment section, a big surprise. If IndyCar, this person's an idiot, why haven't they been fired, etc. I mean, it's kind of expected. And same with social media. But I do believe, Greg, uh, IndyCar fans are not miserable or angry all the time. I believe that there is a small number who are just really damn dedicated to being miserable and angry and are looking for things to rip apart uh, spouse or expertise, telling off everyone else how they don't know whatever, but they do. Again, kind of an internet special. Um, I just, I think this is a, a volume versus numbers thing yet again. Uh, so I'll just close on this. I'm a guy who's really fortunate to make his living reporting on IndyCar, uh, living in IndyCar, if you want to call it that, go to a whole heck of a bunch of races each year. And, yeah, from time to time, I'll get someone that pulls me aside and says, man, I really hate what they're doing here. I don't agree with that thing. The vast majority, and I'd easily say 95% or above, are just awesome. And I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm just saying as kind of someone who does his best to be a man of the people. Uh, you know, someone, a conduit for the series to tell whatever stories, connect you with folks, whatever. And so as a result, when I walk around, yeah, I get stopped fairly frequently. Miller even more, because he's been doing this five times as long. And just saying, uh, the average IndyCar fan, pretty amazing pretty positive, uh, really invested, wanting to see this thing succeed and grow and become more, doesn't mean they don't have, and you don't have, any concerns. Doesn't mean you don't believe IndyCar is missing the plot in a couple areas, but if I were to never attend an IndyCar race and just go by the small amount of people speaking extremely loud in whatever things in their lives that lead them to be so miserable and angry and then apply that on top of IndyCar, yeah, I'd get the impression that, oh boy, uh, you want to talk about dark times, that is not a fun group to be around. I just see the opposite in person. And I will absolutely say I place a higher value on the thoughts and opinions of someone at the track who has paid their money to be there and will come over and say, hey, Pruitt, I love this thing, or I hate that thing, than someone who is doing nothing other than offering opinions via social media. Uh, you know, if you're in the game, you're there and committed, you're a part of it. If you're invested in it, I think your voice needs to stand out a little bit more. And at least from those voices that I hear, Greg, it's really encouraging. Now, again, if we were to go back, I don't know, 10 years, uh, and we're talking what we call today the NTT IndyCar Series, which used to be the Indy Racing League, yeah, maybe not as many positive comments. Uh, Randy Bernard coming on board as we transition into the 2010s. Um, picked up a little bit. All right, this is might be going somewhere. Back when Brian Barnhart was, was in charge, it was pretty much the... Uh, 
Brian Barnhart and Tony George show, yeah, maybe not uh, not a whole ton of positivity there, and probably rightfully so. But I've only seen this improve year after year for most, if not all, the decade. There have been some missteps, some big missteps, but uh, for the most part, I am honestly, Greg, kind of mystified by the people who are able to dig and find things to be miserable and angry about uh, these days because I just don't see that much waiting to be unearthed. Of course, there are some things, um, but you know, I'm not talking about crappy TV package for Canada. That's obviously universally recognized. Not great. Uh, Non-live in Australia. Totally get that. Can't argue. Again, some of the TV stuff, people complaining about that, Again, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm good there. Uh, totally in agreement. <laughs> no question. I'm with you there. But I'm just talking some of these things where you go, really? Really? That really? Yeah, okay. That's just you being you. Um, and please know that uh, you do not speak for the vast majority. I know that because I come across and interact with the vast majority. So... I'll just close on that, Greg. Um, that's why I tend to be pretty happy about where IndyCar is at and where it's headed. Uh, not just from what I see, but from the feedback people give me every day, every time I'm at an IndyCar event. Well, I hope you enjoyed Colton Herta. I hope you enjoyed Kate Gundlach. And I hope you enjoyed Renus VK, whose last name I'm not even going to try and pronounce because it will be uh, I will be indicted for murder on that. But... With all that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with a couple more guests. Don't know who they'll be. Send me some suggestions. We'll make it happen. And with all that said, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our Week in IndyCar series brought to you by the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. Thank you for listening. <laughs>